0: for Europe. I am here today with Russian Sam. Hello, hello. And we are about to bring you one of our most fun topics we've ever set upon. This is a really cool episode. Uh, It's really exciting. It ties together so many themes that we've been talking about across the entire, you know, year plus we've been doing this podcast. Before we get into it and tell you the story of Cyrus Teed, we just want to ask if you guys are liking the show, please give us a rating or review on Spotify and Apple Music, wherever you're listening to it. Yes, I'm even say that it'll make you immortal. Yes, yes, please say that. Uh, we're having a lot of fun with this, and we hope you guys are too. So just let us know how we're doing. And without any further ado, let's explain the story of Cyrus Teed and the Koreshian Unity Church. On Christmas morning, 1908, Dr. Cyrus Teed met with his followers. They all gathered at his home on a peaceful island off the coast of Florida. The followers had traveled from New York, Chicago, even distant Germany, just to see Dr. Teed. But here's the thing. Dr. Teed was dead. At least that's what the coroner said when his heart stopped beating a few days earlier. But to this group, who called themselves the Koreshians, Dr. Teed wasn't dead. He was just in a state of suspended animation. Cyrus Teed, who called himself Koresh, which was the Hebrew name for the Persian King Cyrus, believed that the practice of a new religion that he called naturally Koreshanity would allow a human to live forever. And because Cyrus Teed was the founder and master of Koreshanity, he would be the first person to rise from the dead and reach a new level of spiritual potential. But the day started to pass, and Dr. Teed still hadn't woken up from a suspended animation. He lay there in a bathtub, watched day and night by his crushens, who included a fellow experimental doctor named Jacob Weimar. All of these gathered followers were convinced by Weimar that even though their leader looked dead, his belly was slowly moving and expanding. Which wasn't because of any gases being released, but because he was still breathing. And, you know, as his veins started to swell and darken, this wasn't because his blood was congealing, but because hieroglyphic symbols were being written across his skin that would soon reveal the secrets of this faith. But as more days started to pass, Cyrus Teed's skin began to turn purple. Black ooze started to drip out of his mouth and nose. And here, Dr. Weimar realized that the great Koresh was finally starting his metamorphosis. He was turning into the Egyptian god Horus a central figure in Koreshanity. They just needed to wait for this old chrysalis of flesh to dissolve away, and then his new glorious body could be revealed. But one of the Koreshians was a little skeptical. That person was Dr. Teed's own sister, Emma Teed. She didn't like the idea of her brother rotting, so she told the authorities in Fort Myers that there was an unburied corpse here at the island of Astero. On the fifth day after Cyrus Teed had begun his transformation, the coroner came back for the second time. And he said, I already told you this guy was dead, and now look, he is a rotting corpse, and the law says he must be buried. The corrections would freak out about this, because he wasn't dead, he's their leader, he's going to rise. But they came to a compromise. They wouldn't say he was dead, but they would put him in a tomb. Just a temporary, quickly built building of bricks just like Jesus was placed into. They placed the leader into this hastily built mausoleum that didn't list any birth date or death date. Instead, a little sign was written. In compliance with the law,
1: and only for such reason, the body of Cyrus R. Teed is placed in this stone vault. We, the disciples of Koresh, know that this sepulchre cannot hold his body, for he will overcome death, and in his immortal body will rise triumphant from his tomb. Dr.
0: Weimar sent a news briefing out to the thousands of Koreshians around the world that the resurrection might take longer than expected, but they had to keep the faith. The New York Times and the Chicago Tribune mocked Cyrus T in their obituaries, but Dr. Weimar encouraged them to stay strong. For more than 70 years, these Koreshians kept in contact and hoped one day their leader would return. They don't exist anymore because the last member died in the 1980s and a strict vow of celibacy meant it was pretty hard for them to reproduce their numbers. But even though they're gone, I think that the Corrussians are one of the most interesting and enlightening spiritual movements of the 19th and 20th century. That is just so fun to talk about and gives us so much to think about, about what was going on in the heads of everyday and often totally reasonable Americans around the turn of the century. So. I gotta ask you, Sam, who the hell was Cyrus Teed? Well, Cyrus Teed,
1: uh, he was a doctor. Uh, before he began his ascent into prophethood. But let's go further back. Uh, let's talk about who this guy is and where he comes from. He was br- he was born back in 1839 in upstate New York, which was at that point going through uh, this massive spiritual transformation. In fact, at this point, it was even called the Burnt Over District because so many different Christian sects were arising at this time. This was, of course, the period of the Second Great Awakening, right which mostly led to the creation of new and energetic forms of older protestant denominations like the baptists and the methodists but some of them were so radical in their teachings that they stretched the limits of protestantism and even christianity writ large one group of these were the millerites now known as the seventh day adventists and the others were the mormons so as we can see this was really a primordial stew of all kinds of spiritual weirdness at this time although it wasn't just spiritual as we'll go we're going to get into shortly
0: yeah But this is definitely the spiritual side of the Crescens is where Cyrus grew up, because he was actually distantly related to one to, uh, one of Joseph Smith's wives. And he was even the grandson of a more mainline Protestant minister. He was raised as like a typical, you know, Protestant Christian, but he was exposed to groups like the Mormons and the Millerites and a lot of more obscure cults, too. Yeah, so there was a lot of
1: open-mindedness in this period, as we mentioned previously, and as long as you called yourself a Christian, you had quite a bit of leeway in terms of what you can preach. Yeah. So all of these really eclectic belief systems began to crop up, and... There was this widespread understanding at this point that God and his messengers would often appear before the holiest people to spread a new version of the gospel because clearly the modern world had led
0: the Christians astray. Right, and that that part is really essential here. The idea that any regular person like Joseph Smith could be visited by an angel. There's, I think, I feel like Catholicism has a lot of stuff like that, like the Marian apparitions, but I get the impression that most Protestants didn't really believe that too strongly until right around now. And I think that a big part in this, who we talked about in episode 41 on spiritualism, was Emanuel Swedenborg, this uh, Swedish theologian who had a lot of very interesting ideas about the afterlife and even about ghosts. And his belief that the dead could speak to the living basically started the uh, 19th century spiritualist movement. Yeah, the
1: first well-known seances were, of course, performed by two teenage girls, where they were performing, you might ask, in Hydesville, New York, which was just a day's horse ride away from Teed's house in Gutica. Right,
0: and because he was, again, in in this whole environment in the burned-over district, he almost definitely met William Miller, who led the Millerites, who are now the Seventh-day Adventists, and their whole thing was that Jesus was about to return and lead all the faithful to heaven. Which and that specific belief in a roundabout way would eventually become part of Cyrus Teed's own philosophy. It seems like he had an interest as a kid in both religion and science, but his family wasn't rich enough. So those fields were basically shut out from him at the time being. Instead, when he was just 11 years old, all these ambitions were dashed because they pulled him out of school and put him to work. And it wasn't just like manning the counter at the candy store. They put him to work working on the Erie Canal. Yeah,
1: and this was really grueling physical labor. It, it really instilled in him a deep hatred of capitalism and wage labor writ large. Mm-hmm. And also, it should be noted that because he was a child, although he was doing the same kinds of labor as an adult would have been doing, he would have been getting like half of the wages that an adult would be yeah. receiving. So it really left a bad taste in his mouth. And because of the scale of the project, it required a lot of labor. And this was at a time when there was a lot of immigration happening into New York. So of course, these poor immigrants who were coming without an education or any real means to subsist on would go over to the canal to do a hard day's work to get their daily bread.
0: Right, and because it was a canal, this meant that it physically connected the like rural areas of upstate New York with New York City and then beyond to Europe and Latin America. So you had all of these pamphlets coming in about news of the world and new ideas from the world, and it seems pretty likely that he was exposed pretty early to ideas like communism, as well as ideas like mesmerism and phrenology more on the spiritual side. Another big part of popular literature back in the middle of the 19th century was actually medicine. A lot of normal people were very curious about how the body because we We're just figuring this stuff out. And a lot of medical theories in the 1850s were a little less accurate than others. And some of the information that the very young Cyrus Teed began reading about, was about what we would now consider alternative medicine treatments. At a time though, when there was a lot less, uh, I guess you could say, standardization. And at a time when many of the more accepted treatments were pretty awful themselves.
1: Yeah, so Teed, he really got the medicine bug in him. He wanted to go to medical school, but uh, unfortunately he was not from a wealthy family. So this was out of his reach. But when he was around 20 years old, he enlisted to fight in the Civil War. He hoped that he would get training as a medic, which would help him to start his uh, career. Right. But instead, the Union Army thought he'd be better suited to be an infantryman. But constitutionally, Teed was not the perfect military man because shortly after he joined, he was discharged from the Army because he got a severe case of heat stroke, which temporarily paralyzed half of his body and seemingly might have caused some brain damage along the way as well, which uh, will
0: be quite relevant. You yeah, know, it, it, it was bad he was like uh, he was temporarily paralyzed even
1: yeah exactly yeah so by the time he got out of the hospital uh his family had scraped together enough money to to get him to medical school so he enrolled in the eclectic medical college in new york city yeah so uh what is eclectic medicine you might be asking yourself it's quite interesting really uh liam you suggested that there might be a native american
0: influence here yeah, at least there was there was a stated Native American influence. This was a time when I guess uh there was a, so much news coming out of the West in analysis and often probably very inaccurate analysis of, you know, Native American cultures that a lot of western doctors or uh, you know, white doctors started thinking maybe some of these native guys have some interesting yeah, ideas. and of course they so did. A big part of it yo, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know, I'm sure. Like uh, famously, uh what was it? Uh, penicillin was practiced among uh, certain native tribes before it was, you know, rediscovered essentially by by Westerners. And I think that a really important idea here, which is probably more based on this, uh, more based on stereotypes of Native American medicine than anything else, is the idea that everything should be plant-based, that herbs are the center of this belief, and so uh, herbal cures were basically the heart of eclectic medicine. And so, I think that in a distant kind of way, you could connect, or at least you could compare nineteenth-century eclectic medicine and their herbal cures with uh, holistic medicine and homeopathy today. Um, in case we you might think that we're giving these guys a bad rap, I
1: I just want to say that I think these guys were honestly onto something because this was a period when conventional medicine often did much more harm than good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Doctors didn't wash their hands. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, in fact, they institutionalized the guy, uh, Semmelweis, who suggested that doctors should wash their hands. But anyway, yeah, famously, this very rough state of medicine at the time meant that people who opted for a more hands off or placebo driven approach had better outcomes than people who, you know, would get pumped full of heroin and mercury by conventional physicians. It was not a great time to get sick. No, no,
0: not at all. So if you're ever time traveling, make sure you go to an eclectic doctor. Yeah. And, and it's- And that's kind of an important thing here, that even though we know today that these techniques probably weren't very accurate, I don't think that we should assume that the people doing these techniques were cynics. And this is kind of a bigger part of the whole Cyrus Teed story. It's easy to laugh at him today, but I don't think we should think that he wasn't sincere in his beliefs. Like you said, there were a lot of really good reasons to be interested in eclectic medicine. And also at the time, it was generally more accessible if you were from a working class background, it was easier to get involved into eclectic medicine. And because they saw themselves as kind of storming the citadel of the medical establishment, they even uh, explicitly called themselves Protestants in that they were basically the medical equivalent of Martin Luther, you know, putting their 95 theses on the uh, the wall of the uh, medical papacy.
1: Yeah, um, exactly. So because of the rapid expansion and in interest, there was a proliferation of medical schools, both orthodox and eclectic during the first half of of the 19th century.
0: Yeah, right. And especially, yeah, and especially after the Civil War, Cyrus T had hoped to get medical training in the army. He didn't get that, but a lot of people did, which meant when the war was over, there were a lot more doctors, a lot more medical schools, but one little problem, there weren't enough bodies.
1: Yeah, so because of this uh, grave robbing became uh, a big part of the medical profession. And this had already been the case in Europe for centuries. There was a lot of uh, discontent yes. um, around the fact that these physicians were going into graveyards and digging up old uh, skeletons. And go and behold, there was suddenly a lot more of that going on. Yeah,
0: and I, we should mention that because uh, eclectic schools were generally less reputable, or at least probably more importantly, less well connected to money, they often relied more heavily on these kinds of less scrupulous means of acquiring cadavers. And so uh, a fair amount of, it seems that eclectic schools were fairly or unfairly singled out as grave robbing institutions during this time.
1: Yeah. So here's a quote from a paper titled Body Snatching in Ohio During the 19th Century by Lyndon E. F. Edwards. In December 1839, a quote unquote resurrection riot was precipitated in Worthington, Ohio, resulting from the discovery that three bodies had been stolen from the graves of the Pottersfield in Columbus. Suspicion was once directed at the Worthington Reformed Medical College, the students and faculty of which had been under suspicion of grave robbery in Franklin and Delaware counties for several years. In fact, the faculty had been threatened by civil suits for illegal disinterment numerous times, and in 1838, Dr. T. V. Morrow, president and professor of anatomy of that institution, was actually sued in court on criminal charges, but was acquitted. On two occasions, the college building was surrounded and searched for missing bodies by the sheriff and his posse, but without success. On this particular occasion, however, when the mob entered the building, the bodies missing from the powder's field were found. As a result, the medical college was forced to close its doors, although it subsequently was rechartered in Cincinnati as the eclectic medicine college of that city. In December 1845, the body of Chauncey Carver was stolen from the grave at Aurora, Ohio, and on January 9, 1846, an anti-grave robbing meeting was held at the Baptist Church in that village. It was resolved that a petition was forthwith drawn, signed, and forwarded to their county representative, praying to make grave robbing a penitentiary offense. The next reported incident of grave robbing to occur in Ohio took place in Cleveland in February of 1852, when it was discovered that the body of a young woman by the name of Johnson had been taken from her grave. The father, having been suspicious that her body was taken in one of two medical colleges in that city, made a search of the buildings, but without success. Rumor and gossip, however, soon induced him to believe that her remains had been found in the building of the Cleveland Homeopathic College, whereupon, armed with an ax, he started for that institution accompanied by a howling, furious mob, which overpowered the police, forced an entrance into the building, and demolished its furnishings and equipment. This shameful demonstration of violent human emotion failed to disclose any remains of Miss Johnson.
0: Very Frankenstein, right? Like the, the angry mob going- going in to find the uh, the stolen bodies.
1: Yeah, um, exactly. So as you can tell, this was a very fraught time in medicine and really nobody's hands were clean, unfortunately. But uh, let's get on to Mr. Teed. What was going on in his life at that point?
0: Right. Because, yeah, because it's important that Cyrus Teed, although he was a doctor, he's not really known to us today as an eclectic doctor. And he's also not known to us as a child worker on the Erie Canal. Instead, Cyrus Teed is known as the founder of the Koreshian Unity Church. Like, as we mentioned, as we've kind of hinted at, this really strange group that preached celibacy and as well as the aspiration to immortality, among many other things that we're going to talk about. And unlike a lot of interesting intellectual leaders who I feel like, I feel like usually had a pretty slow or kind of hard to track or subtle evolution of their thought, Cyrus Teed's change came in 1869, and it happened with a bang.
1: Well, it was also subtle in its own ways, but yes, it was a very momentous occasion. Uh, (laughs) Teed had had spent his entire life up until that point dabbling with various belief systems that outsiders would have found strange. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Teed, to the surprise of many, us most of all, uh, was in fact somewhat of a prodigy in this field. He had mastered alchemy and the science of transmuting
0: other elements into gold. Uh, you know, he was really- Yeah, like, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah. Nostradamus, Nicholas Smell, they couldn't figure it out, but he, Cyrus Teed,
1: he did it. Yes, Cyrus Teed. He's the greatest genius of the modern era. So in 1869, in the course of one of his alchemical experiments, uh, which involved electricity, it should be noted, Teed accidentally el- electrocuted himself so hard that he blacked out. While in this state, he had an experience with what he would call the Divine Mother. Teed would later recount this experience in a pamphlet called The, in the Illumination of Koresh. As Teed recounts uh, the episode, he says he felt a pleasant relaxation and buzzing sensation spreading all throughout his brain and then gradually over all of his body. And he felt that he had been transported outside of his physical form, in fact. He could not feel his own body and, and he began to panic.
0: Has my thirst for knowledge consumed my body? Am I now to lose myself in the absorption of my identity and the obliteration of my consciousness, as well as having lost my physical
1: structure?" He opened his eyes, but he saw nothing. He only heard the quote-unquote composite blending of sweetest sounds, and then he saw a flood of light, at which point he began to
0: hear a sweet voice. My son, behold the formulation of thy maternity. I am the goddess and the environment of that which thou hast become, the inherent psyche and pneuma of my organic form. I have brought to this birth to sacrifice thee upon the altar of all human hopes, that through thy quickening of me, thy mother and bride, the sons of God shall spring into visible creation. Thou art no more. That which thou didst derive from things beneath, and which gave thee semblance of life, that was but the broken continuity of perpetual dying, and is gone from thee forever. Thou art now my life, and I am thy visible compassment. Thou shalt possess me henceforth, for I am thy inheritance. My son, receive now the blessings flowing from my August motherhood. She first called him the quote-unquote,
1: offspring of Osiris and Isis, and later during the experience, it became more explicit when she called him Horus. While he still could not see his own body, he fell onto his knees. My mother, behold my obedience! In thy hand I experience the chasteness of thine own virginity, communicated through me in the respiration of thy holiness. From this I feel within me the power to overcome, and even now, from thy first presence, I am repelled from my former evils and falses in such agonistic precedence that I turn my face to thee, to find my blissful and hallowed repose. My motherhood, in thee I dwell, and in thee I find my rest forever. Suddenly the speaker appeared before Teed. it was a beautiful woman he tells her that he wishes to spend the rest of eternity in her presence but she tells him thou art chosen to redeem the race he tells her that he understands that he is a sacrificial offering and that she is the godhead made manifest so he returns to earth and as he wakes up he comes to terms with what he had just learned through his electro alchemical experiments he accidentally stumbled upon the law of transmutation the same thing that Enoch um, Elijah and Jesus had known to transcend the human experience was possible. And this was the moment that would
0: change Teed's life forever. Right. And I think this is so interesting, this whole little like confession, this this, this explanation, because it's this amazing linkage of modern 19th-century science and this ancient tradition of esoteric hermetism. You know, going back uh, Going back certainly to the Middle Ages and claiming to go back all the way to the Biblical era.
1: Yeah, and going beyond that, between uh, Christianity and the Bible and other uh, Eastern influences, in the course of this pamphlet, he says that he experienced, quote-unquote, nirvana.
0: Right, of course, which is a a Buddhist conception
1: yeah yeah and that he would now bring the message to the world which really speaks to the great eclecticism of of teed's theology on the one hand this divine mother is very similar to the woman described in revelation 12 who gives birth to a son while a dragon waits to devour it but on the other hand there are also very clear elements of egyptian and so-called eastern theology it seems very probable that teed had been exposed to theosophy at some point or at least its precursors add to that mesmerism christian science that is healing through the power of the mind Mm. and alchemy, and you have a
0: very potent mix. And boy, would T put it to good use. (laughs) That's right. Because thanks to this experience, he began to formulate his own new religion for the first time, which eventually would be called Koreshanity instead of Christianity, with Cyrus being the Hebrew version of the name Koresh. He basically uh, or explicitly saw himself as the Messiah which would have freaked out many devout Christians in the 19th century, but also intrigued some and eventually would attract a lot of people to this movement. Yeah, yeah, can you tell us, Sam, why is uh, King Cyrus, uh, Koresh, such an important figure in Christianity and Judaism?
1: for that matter. Yeah, well, it's because Cyrus was the king who allowed the Jews in exile to return from Babylon back into the land of Judea to rebuild the temple. So in the book of Isaiah, verse 45, one, King Cyrus of Persia is straight up called the Messiah. The verse reads, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Koresh, whose right hand I have held that I may subdue nations before him and loose the loins of kings that I may open before him doors and gates which shall not be shut. And if your mind jumped to David Koresh and the Branch Davidians right now, uh you're not alone. There have been other people who have tried to draw a connection between Cyrus Teed and and the Branch Davidians, but as we're going to learn very shortly, that's total bullshit. Yeah. Although the biblical uh, reasoning for these two figures taking on
0: this name is the
1: same, these groups could otherwise not be more different.
0: Right. And I would say also their behavior, you know, it looks similar from afar, but in practice, very different kinds of cults, very different kinds of compounds. Despite the very strange contours of his faith, as we can see,
1: Teed would continue to be deeply steeped in the biblical text, building upon them the proof of his message. But then again, he also spoke of Egyptian gods and nirvana. So clearly some wires got
0: crossed somewhere along the way. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and he actually continued to practice medicine during all of this, but he would be preaching his newfound beliefs on the side and sometimes even not so much on the side because uh, some of his patients reported that while being treated, he would also say, oh, you know, I've also uh, developed this thing called core shanity. Let me tell you about it.
1: Yeah, and uh, these patients, they mostly found teed annoying uh-huh. uh, for his preaching, although he seems to have been a somewhat competent doctor. So as we mentioned at the top of the episode, upstate New York was the site of, the, of a groundswell of various heterodox religious communities You had the Mormons, of course, you had the Shakers, uh, with whom Teed, in fact, would spend a significant amount of time. Yeah. There was even a period when it seemed like the Shakers and the Koreshsians might become a single group, as well as the uh, Amonida Society and beyond. Um, As we mentioned previously, Teed was a cousin of Joseph Smith's wife. Yeah. And people were just kind of sick of it, because at this point, there had been uh, several decades of these weirdos coming and going and trying to build up a following, and most people just weren't up for it. So so because of this, Teed was constantly bouncing around from town to town. Uh, so Just like Joseph Smith. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, except Teed uh, wasn't really persecuted as heavily as Smith, at least not at this point. Mm-hmm. But in July 1879, for example, he was staying in the town of Sandy Creek, and he awoke to find a note on his door informing him that he had 24 hours to leave the town or, quote-unquote, to be helped out. Teed wrote to his sister that, quote, people are getting exasperated over my doctrines. Of course, I shall make no move out of this town. <laughs> he stayed put in Sandy Creek until his business failed in 1880. and his parents needed another set of hands in the mop factory. But Teed would basically spend an entire decade moving around endlessly in search of a people with whom his message would resonate. Yeah, he's probably what, in his 40s now? Yeah, early 40s. And it was around this time that he began to attract attention from the press, but Mm -hmm. not exactly in the most flattering light. In 1884, in the town of Syracuse, uh, a disgruntled former follower went to the New York Times with a story of intrigue and fraud. Teed would remain a staple in newspapers for the remainder of his life, and most of that coverage was quite negative. So uh, let's see what the New York Times had to say about uh, Mr. Teed in August of 1884.
0: Sure, he is the prophet Cyrus a doctor obtaining money on the ground that he is a new messiah. Dr. Cyrus T. of Syracuse has an office in West Onondaga Street. He has been here for only a few years, but has gained a lucrative practice among some of the best people in the city. Dr. Teed says that his diploma was given him at the Eclectic Medical College of New York in February 1868. Mrs. Charles Cobb, a member of the Plymouth Congregational Church here, has been treated by Dr. Teed for nervous prostration. She charges him with obtaining money from her and from her mother, Mrs. Willis of Camden, under the plea that he is Second Christ. Dr. Teed claims that he is now the prophet Cyrus, who, according to the prophecy of Isaiah, was to appear on Earth. He also claims that when he was 30 years of age, he received divine manifestations, and that when he is 46, he will be translated to heaven. Whence he will return 50 days later to found a new kingdom where all will be love. By love, he means only mind love, of great purity and elevation. Those who follow him, as the great exponent of this belief, will live forever in this life. He lived in a house just outside the village. It was said that he'd eloped with Mrs. Ella Wolseley, whose husband keeps a livery stable in Moravia. District Attorney Dewis says that he was consulted in regard to the matter. He is ready to proceed legally against Dr. Teed for obtaining money under false pretenses at any time. Dr. Teed, in his own belief, says that he can prove by biblical and scientific lore that he is the prophet Cyrus. Yeah, great article. And this is really the tone
1: of pretty much all subsequent coverage of Teed. Yeah, Uh, yeah. These are the same themes and accusations which would follow Teed all throughout his life. Maybe there was something there, but maybe there wasn't. It's really hard to tell with so much time having passed. But this particular story is what brought an end to his practices upstate. Mm-hmm. At this point, he took to New York City, which was a bustling metropolis, of course, which was bound to contain more people who are receptive to his message. Mm-hmm. So he set out to New York with his sister, a cousin, and two more women. He left behind uh, his parents and his wife, who at this point was suffering from a very severe case of tuberculosis and was in no state to travel, but also she doesn't seem to have been down with the whole I'm the Prophet deal. So Teed's group did. They set up shop in New York, but the finances are totally shot through. Uh, Teed began to give lectures to spread his message, but he didn't really see much success for a good while. Uh, The group had to go cold and hungry, quite literally. After Teed's parents and wife died, the group's funding ran dry and they dispersed. But Teed was lucky enough in that a follower had invited him to come live with her. Unfortunately, she had
0: some other requests. Eggly had made an especially peculiar request of Teed, sexual intercourse through the urethra. Troubled, Teed shared this with Ab in a letter in which he tried to puzzle out how urethra sex would be anatomically and spiritually impure. The sponsors even prevented Teed from sending a copy of his manuscript to Ab, saying that Ab would treat Teed's writing like the word of God and therefore not edit it. Until this point, Ab had helped Teed edit his fledgling newspaper and his manuscripts, but these women insisted on having editorial control. Yeah, and
1: Ab was Teed's first follower and close personal friend Mm -hmm. who would stay with him throughout his life. He was really the first one who believed. And he would stay with him even during the uh, emergence of this pee hole drama. Oh yeah, absolutely. But fortunately for Teed, he didn't have to stay in this toxic situation for long. He got a really lucky break a woman who had attended one of his lectures invited him to come speak in chicago for at a convention of so-called mental scientists these guys were sort of like christian scientists who are still around today who believe that the power of the mind can heal the body and whatnot but t he was really a hit over in chicago uh, which he hadn't been in new york within a few days of meeting the group he was elected to be their president in fact (laughs) <laughs> that's so great. But that, that's
0: like, that, that's main character stuff. You know, if, if that happens to you, maybe you think you really are the second coming of Jesus. You really are Koresh. You're even Horus. Yeah, yeah. There's
1: definitely something very compelling about this guy, even if his beliefs are clearly uh,
0: not... Yeah totally hinged to this world. Right. And I got asked then, so what what, what do you think was so compelling about this guy? Because he seemed like a pretty like typical middle-aged, you know, 19th century white dude.
1: I mean, he wasn't, he was kind of handsome, I guess. One thing that everyone seems to mention is that his eyes were just Mm -hmm. really bright and compelling. He was clearly a great public speaker because he was able to convert people. Yeah. Well, not a lot of people, but a decent number of people. I think several thousand, right? Several hundred, definitely. Here's how... The Allure of Immortality uh, describes Teed in his early
0: days in Chicago. Uh, We should mention that this book is by Lynn Milner, and this is what we're leaning on pretty heavily for this episode.
1: Yeah, this is the main source for the episode, and it's a really fun read if you're ever in the mood for
0: some fun history. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's it's very entertaining. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Milner writes, Teed looked like any other mild-mannered clergyman, a New York Times reporter claimed, until he spoke. When his small dark eyes began to shine as he talked, When he fixed his audience with an almost hypnotic stare, then it became evident that here was a man marked out from the common herd. He held up a Bible for the audience to view, and he explained that people call it the Word of God. But it is not. The Bible is instead great scientific text, he told them, and his mission was to interpret the Bible for the scientific age. The mental scientists who wanted to reconcile faith and the science of healing listened intently. So Teed began to gain something of a
1: following. These were overwhelmingly women from from an upper middle class or upper class background. For whatever reason, women in particular just found Teed very compelling. And although the newspapers always used this to accuse Teed of impropriety, and in fact, the New newspapers weren't the only ones doing this. There were even lawsuits brought against Teed by several husbands who claimed that he was seducing their wives. And although it does seem like he was a very flirtatious person, maybe that was part of the appeal. This was the Victorian era when Mm -hmm. women just weren't treated that way by most people. So maybe that was part of the appeal. But clearly he was a very charismatic type and uh, it paid off him. So we really have to ask ourselves, there's Teed the man, who's clearly charismatic in his own ways, but what was he preaching exactly? For a while, the contours of Teed's faith were vague, and they centered around Teed's messiahship, reincarnation, transcendence, and immortality. Mm -hmm. But by 1880, or thereabouts, they had a more definitive form. Basically, Teed called for celibacy, a communal way of living, and the abolition of private property. Teed had a very well-developed critique of American society, in fact. And even though the goofy stuff tends to take center stage when the story is told, this social aspect really needs
0: to be kept in mind for why the group was so successful. Right, because we mentioned that he might have had some exposure to like anti-capitalist philosophies from the continent. We don't know if he read Marx directly. There's no experience of that, any evidence that that excuse me. But it seems like communalist anti-market thought was a really big cornerstone of his message. He was explicitly anti-capitalist.
1: Yeah. And again, he was coming from a long tradition of American religious weirdos who took a strong stand against the market and really wanted to return to the communal living of the early Christian followers who basically just um, held all property in common. Um, In fact, even the Mormons Mm -hmm. initially had a so-called united order, which held the group's property in common and, and basically was sort of this like primitive communist type deal. Uh, But in addition to his anti-capitalist leanings, Teed was also a pretty radical feminist, even by the standards of our time. He believed that sexual relations kept women enslaved to the whims of men and that celibacy would be the ultimate liberation. Here's how Sally Kitsch, the author of Chaste Liberation, put it. Koresh considered marriage to be quote-unquote sex slavery for women. Koreshian texts accused men of using male dominance in the cursed family system to quote, demand privileges, right emoluments, honors, opportunities, and freedom, which they claim as good and necessary to them and their welfare, which they insist that all these are not allowed to women. End quote. Christians also identified all laws since the curse of Adam as man-made and male aggrandizing. They felt that the extermination of sexual love with women as its so-called executioner would end inequity between sexes by snipping its root sexual practice. Kitch continues. Quote, Koresh employed the metaphor of commerce in characterizing a new link between the sexes. Wrongly divided by the curse, he advocated, so, quote unquote, true commerce in both family and work domains as a means of achieving an equitable, quote unquote, collection and distribution of all the products of nature and industry. In contrast, he saw the mainstream sexual nuclear family as a system of false commerce or prostitution in which money and love are wrongly blended because a woman's need to barter her sexuality and marriage in order to achieve economic.
0: And I just want to jump in there. That's really similar to what Marx said in 1848. It's funny. I think they arrived at that thought independently, but it's kind of interesting. It's the same conclusion. Even the manifesto has that line about uh, prostitution, public and private. He also blamed female financial
1: dependence in the family for materialism and competitiveness among men. Such dependence, he felt, creates pressure on men to meet the financial obligations incurred by women. And although Kitsch does criticize Teed's communes in this book uh, because they maintain traditional gender roles in terms of the tasks that would be assigned to people, it doesn't seem like this was an ideological thing at all for Teed. In fact, it would have been a matter of assigning people to do what they knew how to do best, rather than this idea that women have to do the laundry and the cooking. But as you might have ventured to guess from the top of the episode, Teed wasn't known for his radical critiques of society and of themselves. Instead, he really shone when it came to his theory of so-called cellular cosmogony. Um, in other words, this was the belief in a concave, hollow earth. So how did Teed arrive to this conclusion, you ask? Um, again, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40,
0: verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? So so this was taken to mean that the
1: Earth was, in fact, hollow. And as we saw earlier, Teed was really into this idea of a total unity between science and religion of nature and man. Yeah. Uh, the social order needed to be structured along the principles of nature, and that would of course, mean along the principles of religion and science. It was a theory of
0: everything. Yeah, it totally was. And that's what I think is a kind of interesting part here is that you pointed out as you are planning this, that the idea of a theory of everything, which comes up in religions, it comes up in secular thought. I think even some very ill-advised interpretations of Marxism kind of take this form as this simple thesis that explains the entire world. And that's really attractive to people.
1: It's a great mobilizing mechanism really because we just physically can't comprehend the the complexity of the world around us. So the point is really to come up with this one overarching theory that could seemingly explain as many things as possible. And if you can, you know, arrive at the truth, you can plausibly figure out how to do something about the system writ large. So I so I guess that's why it's
0: so appealing. We're getting ahead of ourselves here because what we want to discuss is the hollow earth theory that he drew from Isaiah. And like we said, this unity of science and religion, he even used scientific methods that we're going to talk about to explain why he believed the earth truly was hollow. And he even made friends with some scientists who believed him and helped him try to prove this. But his hollow earth was a little bit different from more common hollow earth theories you guys, the audience, might have heard before. Because although he did believe the world was hollow, he had one interesting difference. He thought we weren't living on the outside of the hollow earth, we were living on the inside of it. The entire world was folded in on itself.
1: Yeah, so the Earth is concave in this conception, and and we live on the inner surface of its outermost layer, and what we perceive to be the sky and the universe is all inside the Earth. The Earth's crust is 100 miles thick and composed of 17 layers, and beyond that, there's nothing. If you find this confusing, uh, basically think of the Earth like an egg. We live on the inner surface of the shell, and the sky is the yolk. Here's how Pitzer, in America's Communal Utopias, explains it. Within the Earth's
0: surface was found the central Sun, always half-lit and half-dark, thus explaining day and night, and this was the power battery of the entire universe. Our Sun, however, was only a projection of the central Sun and followed the path of the ecliptic. The patterns were reflections of mercurial disk floating in space between the various layers of the crust, and the Moon was a sphere of crystallic energy forming an X-ray picture of the Earth's surface, which was radiated to us on the surface through the Moon's own energy radiation. Stars were focal points of light, light and mere reflections of the Mercurial Disci. Energy was matter, and matter was energy, energy flowing into and out of the central sun, materializing into matter on the crust, and re-energizing and re-radiating back to the central sun." This has very time cube vibes, honestly. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. And that's the problem with the internet, is that back before the internet, guys like this could form their own cult, because people had less access to information, they had less competing ideologies to deal with, and they had more free time on their hands. These days, the only people coming up with these fun theories are cranks like TimeCube, and nobody ever believes in them.
1: Well, call me old fashioned, but I want to return. We need more respect for cranks. <laughs> cranks don't get enough
0: respect in our society these days. Yes, we do. We do. And I think that what makes him an especially interesting crank is the fact that it was, you know, scientific. Like I mentioned Frankenstein before, he was a very Dr. Frankenstein kind of figure. He was using the newest scientific methods of the 19th century to get to the underpinnings of life itself and the secrets of the universe. And because he saw himself as a doctor and a scientist, he actually devised these seriously thought out experiments to prove all of his various theories.
1: So again, he believed in something he called a religious science and he felt that scientists were mistaken about this geocentric Copernican model of the universe because they didn't understand the principles of optics and perspective. And Teed clearly did. He'd done the reading, he'd done the homework, he knows the truth. So uh, watch out, mainstream (laughs) scientists. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And Koresh was hardly the first person to take a stab at this kind of stuff. Take a look at British utopian socialist writer Samuel Robotham, for example. In the 1830s, he conducted a so-called bedford level experiments, which he believed proved a system that he called the Zetetic Astronomy. According to Robotham, the Earth was entirely flat and the continents are enclosed in the giant ice wall. If this sounds familiar, it's because modern flat earth theory is largely derived from this guy's
0: thought. Oh, yeah, and and flat earth theory is, of course, a very interesting other uh, part of this whole equation.
1: Yeah, and Teed also wasn't the first person to formulate a hollow earth theory, although his model did differ from the most popular ones of his days. The theory of a guy called John Sims held that there were holes in the poles and that if one were to enter them, they would find, quote unquote, warm and rich land stocked with drifty vegetables and animals, if not men. Mm -hmm. And I just like to imagine if these people ever got together and tried to debate each other on the merits of their theories because that would be some excellent entertainment. (laughs) And these kinds of theories were very popular back in the day. So take, for example, Jules Verne's novel, Journey to the Center of the Earth. In fact, it's one of his most popular novels. And it basically, uh, you know the story, basically the scientists, they go to the poles, they go into the earth, and they find dinosaurs living in there. And although... I just like to make a point here that although it may seem really funny and unscientific to us now, we should keep in mind that many people who held such ideas were distinguished scientists of their day. So take, for example, the astronomer um, Edmund Haley, after whom the Haley's Comet is named. He wasn't an intellectual lightweight by any stretch of the imagination, and he came to believe in the hollow Earth theory because he saw that the magnetic poles of the Earth uh, were doing some really wonky stuff, and he couldn't really explain why that was without uh, resorting to the hollow Earth theory. And although we know these conclusions to be incorrect, uh, these people were engaging in the scientific method in their own way and that shouldn't be discounted science is very much a process and not just proclamations from these uh, science priests who read the doctrine and uh, deliver it to the masses Mm -hmm. and in fact to this point I'm sure most of you are familiar with the show called Always Sunny in Philadelphia. There is this one episode where basically they're debating about who should pay for detailing in the car after a bowl of cereal gets spilled. It's a long story. But anyway, there's this really great scene that gets to the heart of what I'm trying to say here. This idea that science is very much a process and not these ultra smart guys coming up with ideas by virtue of their being ultra smart and a lot of this also. depends on faith to one extent or another. So we're going to play you guys a clip from that scene right now and when we return we're going to uh, get back into the life of Cyrus Teed and his religious community.
2: Mac, look, you're wasting our time. You're not gonna get us to not believe in evolution. And why is that? Because the smartest scientists in the entire world all agree that it's real. I'm glad you brought that up. Because Mr. Reynolds... Science is a liar sometimes. Oh, boy. This is Aristotle, thought to be the smartest man on the planet. He believed that the Earth was the center of the universe, and everybody believed him because he was so smart, until another smartest guy came around, Galileo, and he disproved that theory, making Aristotle and everybody else on Earth look like a bitch. Of course, Galileo then thought comets were an optical illusion, and there's no way that the moon could cause the ocean's tides. Everybody believed that because he was so smart. He was also wrong, making him and everyone else on Earth look like a bitch again. And then, best of all, Sir Isaac Newton gets born and blows everybody's nips off with his big brains. Of course, he also thought he could turn metal into gold and died eating mercury, making him yet another stupid bitch! Are you seeing a pattern? No. (laughs) Mr. Reynolds, these were all the smartest scientists on the planet. Only problem is, they kept being wrong sometimes. This is insane, you fool! I'm a fool because I have more faith in the saints that wrote the Bible? Yeah, because you just read the words of a bunch of guys that you never met and you just take it on faith that everything they wrote was true. Mm. And what makes you think what your scientists are writing is any more truer than my saints? Because there are volumes of proven data. Numbers. Yeah. Figures. Th- th- there are fossil records. Oh, fossil records. Ah, I didn't even think about the fossil records. I guess I'll concede. Oh wait, well, one more thing before I do, Mr. Reynolds, have you seen these fossil records? Have I, huh? Have you poured through the data yourself, the numbers, the figures? Well, no, I mean, no. Oh, interesting. So let me get this straight, Mr. Reynolds. You get your information from a book written by men you've never met and you take their words as truth based on a willingness to believe, a desire to accept, a leap of, dare I say it, (laughs) faith? Ah, Come on, come on. Look, I mean, I don't even know how I'm supposed to respond to that, like. Come on. That's a false equivalency. Just answer the question, Mr. Reynolds. Sure. Yeah. Okay.
1: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interlude. But now let's get back into the 19th century and the fun life of Cyrus Teed and his wacky commune. Right.
0: And I got to say, it does seem, uh, you know, it seems kind of fun. Like, uh, what I read about this commune definitely wasn't as debauched as some communes could have been, despite what some people might have claimed. But it seems like they mostly got along pretty well. There wasn't that much drama or chaos, as far as I can tell, especially the one in Chicago. What do you think?
1: Uh, there was a fair bit of drama, I'd say, but it was much more tedious stuff, not the kinds of stuff
0: that you expect out of cults these days, thankfully. Right, right. I guess what I see, yeah, I shouldn't say there was no drama. I should say there was no rampant abuse like the kind you often expect at a cult, like the kind uh, led by the other Koresh, for instance. Oh, yeah,
1: um, absolutely. After Teed had been in Chicago for some time, um, at first... They basically bought an entire building that was supposed to house all of the corrections but ultimately, they also managed to acquire a pretty nice house, which Teed called Beth Ulfra, based on a biblical location over in Chicago, and that was where around 28 people, I believe it was, lived. Uh, these were the most important members of Teed's movement, and this was a pretty nice house. Although the rest of the followers, they didn't get nearly as nice conditions. They basically lived in a very cramped apartment building. There was way too many of them, and they just didn't have the resources to live in, you know, a very comfortable life. Uh, this was... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this would change once the group relocated to Estero, but for now, Chicago was very rough on them.
0: Right. Uh, we should probably get into uh, where they were able to get their money to begin with, though, you know, because they did not have too much money, but they were able to buy or rent this property. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and they got it thanks to one of Koresh's followers, a lady named Bertha Dean Boomer. Right, great name. Who really seems like the typical wealthy dowager figure.
0: Yeah, yeah. She wasn't exactly a yet because at the time her husband was married and it seems like he was pretty skeptical of the Coruscant's, but he was actually willing to use a lot of their money from his, you know, high society Chicago background to fund this group that his wife was enamored with.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, this wouldn't have been that unusual either. This was, of course, a time when people were getting involved in social movements writ large and the Coruscant's weren't so crazy that they had zero appeal, right? These were people who were committed to social social reform. And even though they had a wacky way of going about it, uh, nevertheless, they were able to find some money support. Uh, so let's talk a bit about how exactly the Koreshians operated and namely to their key demographic was. Right.
0: Because like so many early religious movements, including even the first years of Christianity, they seem to have drawn especially a lot of their support from women.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Women were the overwhelming majority of the corrections by this point. Yeah which is really interesting. Yeah, and these women, they tended to come from upper middle class or wealthy backgrounds. Some of them were widows, some of them were single women, but others were married women. Some of them even came over with their children,
0: which was a source of much friction between the Koreshians and the outside world. Right, and some of them also, uh, the that uh, the book by Milliner mentions is that a fair amount of them were actually parents, whose, especially mothers, whose children had died and who were looking for some kind of spiritual fulfillment and were probably especially interested in the immortal life aspects of Christianity.
1: Yeah, so to this end, 83 out of 110 corrections in Chicago at this point were women. Wow. And again, many of them were married. And this drew the Chicago press to make all kinds of licentious oh, accusations against Teed because, I mean, sex always sells. Yeah. And reading some of these articles, you can tell that they were having a lot of fun with it. It was just, you know, typical like yellow journalism stuff, the kind of thing that America has always been
0: renowned for. <laughs> And this kind of brings up an important question basically is, was Cyrus Teed in any way actually a sexual abuser? Because there were some offhand allegations to him being such a figure, but I don't think they're that compelling, because as far as I know, these allegations were never made by any alleged victims themselves. Instead, these allegations always came up during broader criticisms of Koroshanity for people who had earlier biases against them, and they said, oh, and by the way, the fact that he's living with these women is very suspicious.
1: Yeah, and in fact, there was even legal action brought against Teed in particular several times. And usually this was the action of aggrieved husbands who claimed that Teed was seducing their wives away from them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Although we should should explain uh, often seducing not so much in like the literal sense, but just because uh, seducing in the sense that he convinced them to join this celibate compound.
1: Yeah, and I mean... It's certainly plausible that there was some funny business going on, although it wasn't like particularly egregious. Um, Again, this would have been consensual. But first of all, there's a lack of firm evidence for Teed's philandering. Uh, Although he was definitely very flirtatious in his correspondences with women. I mean, this leads me to believe that women by and large were drawn to Teed because of his feminist message and the husbands in question were really just annoyed that another man was giving their wives
0: positive attention. So, or, or, yeah, and beyond that, the fact that many of these husbands might have found out that he was giving their wives an independence, that, that they themselves, the husbands, never would have allowed them. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, and I think that, the, yeah, and if we're, if, we're like, if we're looking at kind of the evidence for and against Teed's behavior, I think probably the best evidence in defense of Teed is the fact that so many women joined this cult— or movement, whatever you want to call it, willingly and then stay there for a very long time and basically always insisted that, yes, this group is completely celibate. And I kind of got to wonder if, you know, and this is a very this is an era when sexuality was, I would say, even more male focused than today. I think that the celibacy was probably part of what drew many women to join this organization. I'm sure many women were basically tired of being used sexually by men.
1: Yeah, of course. And women had a very central role in Teed's movement, as we're about yeah. to get into with uh, one of the most important women to be a part of the- organization, and that was a woman who was initially known as Annie Ordway, who had been a married woman uh, with children. She became one of the earliest Chicago followers, and for whatever reason, Teed considered her to be special in particular. So he christened her uh, Victoria Grasha Koresh, and she would come to play a central role in the group's life and theology. And in contrast to Teed, who was generally very popular with his followers, uh, Victoria didn't enjoy the same warm reception there were these persistent rumors that she was engaged in graft and that she was addicted to alcohol and stimulants which was a big no-no in christianity
0: oh yeah i guess i don't think you mentioned this but they were complete teetotalers and that people who were caught drinking would be expelled and i mean She does seem
1: kind of sketchy based on the remembrances of the Koreshians themselves, but on the other hand, some people from outside of the movement who came into contact with her had a higher opinion of her. So, for example, she was... And I think we should mention that in a group like this, basically
0: everybody was kind of sketchy, it seems like.
1: Not everybody, but plenty of people had a very questionable pasts, as we will soon see. But uh-huh. outsiders didn't have the same kind of reception to Victoria, at least some of them. For example, Teeth had sent her as an envoy to the Shakers around this time because he was trying to engineer the unification of the Koreshians with the Shakers, who are another celibate cult from that era, who also died out because their members just weren't having sex but anyway Mm -hmm. the shakers had a positive opinion of victoria on the whole yeah i mean i can i guess it's kind of difficult to say what her deal was because so little of her life and work survive. Although what happened after Teed's death would suggest that she was involved with the movement for less than pure intentions, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Teed himself personally rebuffed all these allegations against Victoria, saying that uh, many women were just jealous of her because of her centrality to the movement. Yeah, come on. She, She got the name crushed. Did anybody else get that? Yeah, so we have to ask, what exactly was Victoria's deal? Why did Teed think that she was so special? Um, According to Teed, she was... Divinely ordained to become the female half of the perfected creature that would come into being once Teed transcended his mortal form, or when he achieved Diocrasis, as the correction lingo went. Teed taught that the energy of his followers, which would be accumulated through the practice of celibacy, would, quote, cause the battery in his head to explode, at which point the energy would enter Victoria's body, and at this point, Victoria would
0: take over the mantle as the group's total ruler for <laughs> <laughs> <forever>. <laughs> I love that, but I also gotta kind of wonder: doesn't that like kind of contradict the whole claims of immortality? Like, did he forget for a second that he was supposed to be immortal, or or what? I mean, he was immortal.
1: It was just that, like, his energy was living on within Vic- within Victoria's body. So, like, this uh, amalgamation would be both Teed and Victoria at the same time. And I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people find that confusing as well. Uh, this passage will. Hopefully clear something up. This is another quote from Kitch's Chaste Liberation. Quote The Koreshians taught the model Bayune celibate as Jesus himself. Several texts define Jesus as the symbol of unified gender identities. First, Koresh explained, Jesus was conceived through a hermaphroditic process in which Mary's quote virginally generative and quote and parthenogenic ovum joined the male word within her. The process was completed only after Jesus's baptism by John, another act of celibate reproduction that contributed distributed force the Pneuma to Jesus' final birth. Thus, in Jesus the male Pneuma and the female Psyche, the two forces, quote, by which the sons of God are manifest, end quote, converge. Second, because he had retained his virginity, Jesus embodied the purest form of both maleness and femaleness, untainted by sexual merger. This interpretation of sexual essences contrasts with mainstream cultural expectations that real men and women will express their gender identities through sexual prowess and reproductive experience. Koreshians found the purest form form of gender identity in persons who were least overtly sexual in behavior, end quote. Yeah, and as we were planning
0: this, Sam, you pointed out pretty astutely that although that sounds kind of wacky, that kind of conception of sexuality and celibacy, that's what a lot of early Christian groups... Practice in, in, in to some extent.
1: Yeah, and not just Christian groups. Even in a lot of the rabbinic texts, yeah. there is this idea that he, the human creation story of Genesis one twenty seven, which we discussed in the Golem episode, uh, was sometimes read as the creation of a hermaphrodite who would later be split up into Adam and Eve. Yeah, there's a verbatim translation of the verse in question, and God created Adam, a person that is. The person in his image. Uh-huh. In the image of God, he created it. Male and female, he created them. There's that just deposition, right? First it's singular and then it's plural. This kind of stuff would find a reception in all kinds of corners, both Christian and Jewish. Uh, one of the early Jewish expounders of the idea was Philo of Alexandria, yeah. who was a very important early uh, Jewish philosopher who also had a strong influence on early Christian thinkers. Yeah, I think we mentioned him in our episode on
0: Quovedis a while back.
1: Yeah, and that also gets us to the point that early Christians often thought of Jesus as a hermaphrodite. Mm-hmm. And in fact, even the depictions of Jesus from the earliest times bear this hallmark, because in many ways, uh, the Jesus that was depicted uh, in those times was modeled on Dionysus, who was this Greco-Roman god of like wine, debauchery. Some sects uh, within the Roman Empire held that Dionysus was actually like the top god Really, and he was also like the sort of philosopher figure. So Jesus
0: would have been modeled on him in many instances. Yeah, wow. And I think another interesting link is that I've read, uh, I think this is by Philip Dayleader, that uh, early monastic communes in Christianity looked a lot like what we see with Beth with the Koreshsians. Because, you know, 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, early monasticism tended to be groups of celibate men and women living together, which is so different from later monasticism, uh, with a strict vow of celibacy, usually drawn from older adults from uh, wealthier communities, who thought that joining this kind of desert commune could give them a holier life. And I have no idea if the Crussians knew that they were behaving like early Christians, but I think it's interesting that they were, given that so many christian and vaguely para-christian religious movements attempt to recreate the conditions of the early church
1: yeah um of course i think that the koreshians were aware of this and that's why they modeled themselves in the way that they did but let's return to victoria Uh, victoria she was also disliked because she would impose these really stringent requirements on members of the group as a way of maintaining control um in fact victoria sounds a lot closer to the stereotypical cult leader than teed himself although teeds Ultimate primacy within the group probably helped to keep her worst impulses under control because he was very insistent that she would not become the head of the group until after Teed had undergone theocrasus So the Koreshians they had a very special pair of holidays. They had the so-called solar festival, which would be celebrated on Teed's birthday, and then a lunar festival for Victoria's birthday. <laughs> fun stuff, fun stuff. But Victoria, she wasn't the only woman to whom Teed assigned special importance. Here's another quote from
0: from Milner's Allure of Immortality. Teed worked with three leading women who he called the Triangle, those being Victoria, Bertholdine Boomer, and Mary Mills, to create a female organization known as the Planetary Group of seven leading women within the movement. Teed told these women, stand by Victoria at all hazards as her cabinet. He cautioned the other followers not to criticize the appointments as they were made from the throne of the Almighty God with Teed simply as its messenger.
1: Yeah, I I really gotta wonder what was up with that. Why did T assign so much importance to Victoria herself? We just don't know. That's
0: one of the yeah.
1: weirdest mysteries of this whole thing.
0: It is, it's it's a great mystery, and that's kind of an interesting thing I feel like about this whole kind of project. Reading into. Cyrus Teed and the Christianity, because there's so many interesting facets of the movement, but it's really difficult to ever get inside the guy's head. And it's really hard to know what his specific motivations are. I think he was a true believer to a great extent, but I'm not sure if that really informs all of his decision-making or if he ever might've had pettier motives.
1: I think his mental illness might've played a role in that, honestly, because clearly he had a few screws loose, unfortunately. Oh yeah, well, the
0: dude's brain quite literally was fried.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but, I mean,
0: dudes rock. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. If you're going to get brain damage, getting brain yeah. damage in an alchemical experiment is easily the best way to do it.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. But Victoria wasn't the only controversial member of the group. Right.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, my favorite of, uh, probably my favorite of all of the Koreshians. Another very interesting woman in this group was named Madame Disdibar. That, I believe, was her real name, Disdibar. She was a really eccentric woman from Kentucky who was pretty well known in the commune because she was very large, she had very fancy clothing, she was described as always being draped in white and black silks, and most strikingly, she had a long facial scar running from her eye to her forehead, so easily the most anime of anybody in the Crushens. She was a friend of Bertholdine Boomer and claimed that she could recall her past lives She said she traveled all around the world, and then she even said in this life, she was actually named as the goddaughter of a late pope. She also claimed that she was the reincarnation of Madame Blavatsky, the founder of Theosophy, even though she was actually born 40 years before Madame Blavatsky died. So I don't know how she did the math on that one. Dude, just trust me. Yeah. (laughs) In reality, uh, she was probably just a very ordinary woman from Kentucky with Irish immigrant parents who was an excellent confidence woman. She had been to jail twice. on one occasion for tricking a man into giving her his home, which kind of funnily enough looks a little bit like what Cyrus Teed would do to later obtain the island of Astero. But it seems like Teed was aware of her criminal background, but didn't really care because he found her very entertaining. And even though she was a known con woman, he seemed to believe her about the whole past lives thing. She said that she can recall a life in which she was a baroness, in which she was a countess, in which she was a princess. She had these very strong pretensions to royalty and that's gonna be important. But in a kind of classic case of, if he will cheat on her, he will cheat on you. Pretty soon the crushin discovered that just as she had robbed many people before, she was now robbing them. And that wasn't her only crime in the commune.
1: Yeah, she was also a very heavy drinker who constantly violated the prohibition against alcohol. Um, in fact, she actually got kicked out because she just got blackout drunk and, yeah. and fell down the stairs, which hurt someone else in the process.
0: And although this one only came out later, so maybe take this with a grain of salt, she was even accused of sort of indirectly violating the law of celibacy. Because after she was kicked out, it was claimed by a woman named Catherine McCready that Distibar had tried to coerce her into seducing a wealthy man who was involved in the Crescens, and that Distibar had this kind of harebrained scheme where she could convince this teenage girl, Catherine, to get involved with this rich man, and then the three of them would run off together with his money.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, old habits die hard, I guess.
0: Yeah, and so after all this came out, uh, Teed eventually, and apparently reluctantly, kicked out Diz Divar, who had been one of his, it seems like one of his closest confidants, at least outside that, you know, central circle of three. I'm curious, uh, do you think she was one of the seven uh, members of that planetary circle or whatever? I couldn't figure out if she was. I don't believe so, no. Okay, yeah. But uh, we should probably mention one other very important correction, because... Pretty soon before leaving Chicago, Cyrus Teed would beat a guy named Ulysses Grant Morrow, who had a lot of similarities with Cyrus Teed, but disagreed with him on one key issue.
1: Yeah, Morrow just couldn't bring himself to believe that we lived inside the hollow earth. He thought that this was ridiculous because Morrow was, in fact, convinced that the earth was flat.
0: Yeah, yeah. He was one of the original flat earthers. And uh, it's pretty funny. So he, at, at this time, he was a young guy, just about 30. I think he was a salesman or something like that. He had a very normal life. But on the side, he was totally obsessed with proving to the world that the earth was flat. Yeah, and I think his wife said something like, my only rival for his affections is his calculations because he was always trying to, yeah, trying to do this. Uh, and so, uh, you yeah, know, like even after Teed's death, he was still tinkering with his formulas. Yes, yeah. And uh, so he was mostly kind of a, a, an independent kind of actor, but he got involved with various religious movements and tried to convince them that the earth was flat. And maybe if they believed him, they would incorporate this into their official dogma. And the latest of these groups that he had been involved with was the Jehovah's Witnesses, or at least some kind of offshoot of them called the Watchtower Society. In 1895, Morrow was at a meeting of the Jehovah's Witnesses when they announced that a very special guest was coming to be involved in a theological debate against their leader. This guest, as you can probably guess, was Cyrus Teed. And like so many people, Morrow was really impressed by Cyrus Teed's demeanor, his outlook, his rhetoric. But what impressed him especially was that Cyrus Teed, just like him, had very strong opinions on the shape or the the curve, or lack thereof, of the Earth. He did not believe Teed initially, but something about this guy was convincing if you could read the
1: same By the time Ulysses learned of Teed's concave earth theory he had poured years into his flat earth theorems and didn't want to let them go but he became infatuated with what Teed called cellular cosmogony and he tried integrating their two theories Teed critiqued Ulysses experiments in the flaming sword and he must have been persuasive because Ulysses disavowed his flat earth research quote the skeleton i had erected has now crumbled before your cutting arguments he wrote to <laughs> Teed and i am free to examine correction science with my mind void of preconceived opinions. That's from Allure of Immortality. Great line,
0: right? Yeah, oh, yeah. The skeleton I had erected has crumbled, man. whenever next time I lose an argument, <laughs> I, I wish I could be that humble. God, I would love to get schooled by Cyrus Teed. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, after that schooling happened, Ulysses Mora would totally convert and become a fervent follower of Uh, And then he would, he would also be the best engineer and mathematician in the organization, and possibly the only one, which meant that he was given the important task of geodesist, which apparently is a real word, which is a very old-fashioned way to say a surveyor. And he decided, or he was assigned, to lead a pretty impressive series of experiments that would prove that the Earth was concave, that we lived inside an egg. And a lot of these experiments were actually much more elaborate than you might expect. Certainly, much more elaborate and interesting and far-reaching than I ever would have expected.
1: The staff's first project was to tackle the most common question about the concave Earth. If the Earth curves inward, critics ask, why does a ship disappear over the horizon? The corrections set out to prove that this was a mirage. They gathered opera glasses, telescopes, sketch pads, and various tools and took a rowboat into the Michigan and Illinois Canal, choosing it because the water was calm and both traffic was light. They drove a stake into the bottom of the canal and placed the target on top, black, white, and red like a bullseye, so they could easily see it from a distance and take measurements against its concentric circles. Once the target was placed, three men rode precisely three miles. By anchoring their boat, they viewed the disc and saw that all of it was visible. They rode another two miles and were pleased to see the full target again. Throughout, they took precise measurements and drew sketches. They then tested it in the opposite Direction, using a white reflective target this time, and rowing five miles. The bottom of the target disappeared, however, they could see it clearly through a telescope, which they held at various documented heights above the water. They continued their experiments in a pier at Lake Michigan, where they viewed yachts, steamers, and old schooners, and noticed that indeed the vessels be- appeared to vanish slowly over the bulge of the horizon, which they estimated was 12 miles away. The holes could not be seen with the naked eye or with opera glasses, but telescope with 50 power lenses rendered the ship's holes clearly visible. Their visual tests were complete and proved that the Earth was concave. They believed, quote, "...it seems strange," Ulysses wrote, "...that a matter as easily observed as this should so long have escaped even the most casual observer, to say nothing of the scientists."
0: But scientists ignored them. And that's, again, from The Allure of Mortality. Uh, I think that quote is kind of interesting, that passage, because it, 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 they almost had a good point. Because, you know, I feel like as a kid, when you're learning about the fact that the Earth is round, at least in my case, they often tell you, like, oh, that, that's why uh, ships start to disappear over the horizon. But I think, I think these guys are correct that the fact that ships disappear is not because of the curve of the Earth, it's simply because they're too small to see, you know? I think they're probably, I think the Koreshians are right about that. But then they took the next leap to saying, therefore, that means the Earth must actually be curving in the opposite direction, which you know, obviously is ridiculous.
1: I mean, listen, if they have one good point, maybe we should hear them out the rest of the, of the way. Gladio for Europe is the only <laughs> pro correction podcast. Yes, but this wasn't the only scientific venture that the group was taking upon itself. Teed actually had another idea, which might sound familiar to some of you listening today. Mm-hmm. Here's another quote from Allure of Immortality. While the media attention was on him, Teed took the opportunity to share what he planned to do once the confederation among the celibate societies was complete. He would build a pneumatic six-gauge railroad connecting the Atlantic and Pacific coasts. Quote, it will carry one to San Francisco in 12 hours, the leader reported. Quote, the cars will run without wheels. The project, Teed said, would create jobs for one million people. <laughs> Ha! <laughs> He's the original Elon. That's what it is. Yes, exactly. This is the old-timey Hyperloop. I mean, listen, if Elon is among the ranks of great minds like Cyrus Teed, I I guess I should give him a fair shake. But back to Ulysses Morrow, he eventually conceived the device which would prove once and for all that the Earth truly was concave. This was a machine he called the rectilineator, and he insisted that it would prove that the Earth was in fact hollow.
0: Right. And it's going to add here. This is my favorite part of the story even this is even more interesting to me than the whole like dead body moldering in the bathtub thing because this just shows this level of ambition and a clarity of vision that i think is honestly genuinely kind of admirable because the the lengths these guys would take to prove that the fact that they were sure that the earth was an egg is really, really interesting. And, you know, it's, it's it's up there with, like, Fitzcarraldo bringing a ship through the Amazon or something like that. It's just this really impressive feat. Uh, I
1: mean, again, to the earlier point, these were scientists. They may have been doing it weird, and they may have been uh, looking for conclusions that do not conform with the state of knowledge in our current year. But at the time when they were doing these experiments, it wasn't nearly as clear as it is today. So I think they deserve to be recognized as, if not the best scientists, Nevertheless, they were
0: actual scientists and not just total cranks. Totally. And let me take a minute to, to just explain what the rectilineator is. because It's a very clever kind of idea. So it's this, the, the idea of a rectilineator, which I, I'm absolutely sure is a word they invented, was this wooden, a very large, very long wooden device that was kind of like a, uh, I shouldn't say a device really. It was like a fence that could be used as like a a giant ruler to supposedly measure the angle of the earth. And the way it works is that they planned to set out basically fence posts at equal intervals, four miles long, a four mile stretch of hundreds of fence posts with a a, wooden, a, ver- a straight wooden crossbar connecting each of the fence posts. And the really key part here about the rectilineator is that starting at a central point at the very center of the line, on each direction, the posts would start getting slightly and slightly smaller, just a tiny bit. So if the first post was, let's say, exactly six feet, the next post would be five feet and 11 and a half inches, then five feet and 11 and a quarter inches on... S- equal intervals go you going further and further out and the point of that was is they hoped that if they used those intervals, they could properly counteract the actual inverse curve of the Earth. So that if one post was slightly smaller than the one next to it, due to the curve of the Earth, the crossbar connecting the two posts would be level. And so they thought if they could build a rectilineator long enough, their thought was four miles long, and then they measured it, even though it it was much shorter on each end, if the crossbar was completely level, throughout the entire row, that would successfully prove that we really were living on the inside of an egg.
1: Yeah, but for whatever reason, uh, they felt that Chicago wasn't the right location to prove that we live inside the earth. Yeah, there were a few reasons for this. Mm -hmm. So for this reason, they would set out to Florida. Here's another quote from Allure of Immortality. This couldn't be done in Chicago, but Florida was ideal, with its stretches of empty shoreline along the Gulf and its mild weather. Furthermore, the Gulf was part of the ocean, and their visual tests had been inland waters. They imagined that this was one reason scientists had ignored them. Perhaps they reasoned, their critics believed that inland waters did not conform to the Earth's contour, though there was no evidence that anyone lodged a complaint like this. Being on the Gulf would eliminate this criticism because, Ulysses wrote, no sane mind could question that it followed the contour of the earth
0: <laughs> yeah yeah uh we can add some pictures of the rectilineator in the show notes it's really interesting just before we move on uh do, do you have any thoughts on like what on what it looks like? like how would you describe it sam
1: uh it's like basically these uh posts something like four feet apart as you said with like basically it's a vertical post running across these posts every four feet, that uh, we're supposed to form a perpendicular line. Yeah. And, I mean, it looks very neat. It looks kind of cool. But I also, while doing research for this episode, I came across some modern-day scientists weighing in on the experiment. And they just... Well, one guy, he actually tried to replicate this a couple of years ago. And he found that, first of all, the measurements that these guys were getting were way off. And second of all, they just didn't have the kinds of precise tools that were needed to actually make the kinds of measurements that they claimed to be making. Right, right.
0: And and there's also... there's one other big problem with the rectilinear that I'll mention in a second to talk about what happened once they started actually building it.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So Teed paid for the construction of this device in Chicago before moving it by train to Florida in 15 separate boxcars. Again, the entire thing was like four or five miles long when put together.
0: Yeah, it's, it's again, like this is like it's like the Great Wall of China. This is like gargantuan. The fact they actually built this is I think much more impressive than the fact that they were able to like, you know, put together a compound, form their own little commune. I
1: would venture to guess that the fact that they were building this is why their compound was unheated for several winters in a row. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, yeah, I think you might write about that. Yeah, but I mean, it's for science. Sometimes you
0: gotta get a little cold for science, am I right? Right, and uh, what's interesting is that, so once they finally started putting it to, once they had built the individual components of the rectilineator, and they were about to ship it down to Florida, where they believed would be the best place to build it, Teed, who was always a great self-promoter, chose to have a grand unveiling of the device. So in September 1896, the rectilineator was complete and ready for display, and the Crushens threw a party at the old town hall in Washington Heights in Chicago, circulating a densely worded event announcement. The Chicago Tribune wrote that those who received the invitation must have felt tremendous relief. The residents of that suburb have been worried greatly as to whether they're living on a flat or a spherical planet, or whether the earth might not be para or a loon. Some of them, it said, have lain awake at night. The reporter continued, it is hinted that science is trembling on the verge of a great discovery. So yeah, here's the Chicago Tribune mocking this guy for, uh, you know, insisting that we lived inside an egg. But hey, like we said, like they, uh... Uh, at the time their numbers at the time seemed to check out well
1: if if their numbers
0: were accurate
1: which again is very doubtful but nevertheless their their hearts were in the right place they were trying their best there there's no question about their sincerity i think in
0: a second, I can explain uh, really the, the most exciting part of the story for me is how they got to Florida, how they started building this island. But before we do, we should probably mention where exactly did their money come from, because some of it was from wealthy, attend- wealthy members like Bertholdine Boomer, but not everybody in the commune was wealthy. Some of them were, many of them were, but how else do they raise money?
1: Yeah, well, basically the plan was to build an entire system of uh, uh, of economic cooperatives where the workers would have shares in the company at which they work. They plan to roll out this concept with a prospectus that they called the Solution of Industrial Problems, which explained that the correction Cooperative would work along these lines. The income would go into a common treasury, which would pay for the expenses, and workers would own shares in the corporation, therefore, reap the rewards of their labor directly, thereby avoiding wage slavery and the tension caused by labor unions. Everyone shared in a society that ran smoothly and took care of its children and elderly. The prospectus explained that they were not a charity and could not provide a home for someone who was not able to work. That's again the allure of immortality. And again, it speaks to very interesting, very eclectic things thought among the Koreshians and it's also somewhat different from their main program because these guys to a very large extent they were kind of isolationists right like they basically thought that their correction faith set them apart from ordinary people and that they would form a city upon a hilltop basically which was what estero was supposed to become but at the same time they also tried to cultivate links with the outside world as well because clearly their model needs to be demonstrated to skeptical observers who might possibly get on board but who aren't really sure at this point well again get into some of these businesses later on but for now let's just talk about Estero the lovely Florida island which would become the new Jerusalem of
0: the corrections. They had some connections through their membership to Florida already, especially the city of Fort Myers, which at this time was very small and very new, but pretty rapidly growing. And people from northern places, especially Chicago, were moving down to Florida at this time. Just, you know, anecdotally, I'm from South Florida too. And uh, just a few blocks from my house growing up, there was this mansion that was built by another eccentric Chicago businessman. So this was like a very, this was around the same time. So the early 20th century was a really big time for Florida. And uh, they found that off the coast of Fort Myers, there was a lovely little island called Estero that only had a very small amount of residents. In fact, all of the residents of Estero were German immigrants, members of the same family, the Domcolers.
1: And the head of this family was a man by the name of Gustav Damkohler, who was a struggling farmer, who was a bit of a religious maniac, uh, in the words of his son. He was always joining all these new cults, just constantly trying to find something that
0: really scratched that spiritual itch that he had with him. Yeah, and and he seems like a real kind of a schlameel too. Like, the, the book Allure of Immortality described that he was just an incredibly unlucky guy. A hurricane would come through and wreck all of his crops one year. Another year, he was out hunting, and he thought he saw a bear. So he was so scared, he dropped his rifle and ran and then lost his rifle forever. And another time, he was out fishing, and he was so convinced that he was surrounded by sharks that he had some kind of a terrible panic attack that left him feeling permanently depressed for the rest of his life. Yeah, and
1: short shortly before T showed up, uh, his wife and daughter, in fact, had died of illness. So Damco's son uh Uh, Elwyn who real who grew up around the Koreshians and didn't have very nice things about them he was very resentful of the fact that these people came in from out of the blue and just took advantage of his father at a time when he was very deeply unwell yeah but nevertheless Dom Kohler he corresponded with Teed for a while and he decided that oh you know I tried all these other fates but this one this one is for sure the real deal so Teed traveled down there actually to see another piece of land which ultimately didn't pan out but in the process he had finally met this man with whom he had been corresponding all this time by pure chance and he was able to acquire the majority of the land owned by dom for a laughable sum it was like three hundred dollars i believe for no
0: yeah i know yeah it makes you think of like the dutch buying manhattan for 24 beads yeah although that one
1: is is apocryphal i believe but and Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, 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 well um, that, that can be your next episode. Oh, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. And let's talk about Estero itself. As we mentioned previously, this was in a part of Florida, which was only beginning to be settled by yeah. white Americans. So it was very isolated. It was far from the sins of the material world. And for the Koreshians, this was just what they were looking for. A Koreshian newspaper in Chicago encouraged uh, the followers to move all the way across the country into this mostly deserted island which basically just had a shack on it at that point. And geography wasn't the only reason why Estero was the perfect location. Quote, it was prophecy. The editor of the sword wrote that Koreshians had come to Florida. He'd had worked out that Astero was the safest place on earth to be in the coming apocalypse. It was the cosmic order of things and it would grow into a great civilization. They had escaped the hells of capitalism. Their exodus from Chicago represented a new epoch
0: for the movement. Mhm. Yeah, so yeah, so not only was it the best place to build the rectilineator, and uh, yeah, it was it was the holiest place supposedly for their New Jerusalem. Yeah, and they
1: drew up uh plans for this city. It was supposed to be enormous. It was supposed to house something like 20 million people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and
0: again, this is this is like a tiny island. Today it's been somewhat developed, but even then the population is only like 30,000. So yeah, I don't th- I simply do not think you could fit 10 million people on the island of Estero.
1: Well, it wasn't just
0: supposed to be the island. They were going to dredge the water to connect it to the mainland, I believe. Oh, okay. I see. I see. But still, but still. And also, if, okay, as someone who is from Florida, I can tell you, like, it's southwest Florida, n- not a great place to live. A lot of bugs, a lot of swamp, a lot of hurricanes, and that'll become important.
1: Yeah. So what was the first thing that the Corrections did when they got to Estero? Building the
0: rectilineator.
1: Oh, boy. And again, as I mentioned previously, the entire device uh, spans something like four miles. And it's very difficult to build because you have to assemble all of these separate parts of it into yeah. this one structure. And because it's Florida and uh, the weather isn't generally the greatest
0: for these kinds of experiments, wind kept moving in and shifting the pieces. Right. And not just wind, like storms would come in, like the classic, you know, Florida rainstorms. And Ulysses Morrow, the engineer, he was actually convinced that this wasn't just an unfavorable weather pattern. He was convinced that the devil had personally sent these storms. And in letters to his wife, I believe, he mentions that, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, like this has to be Satan.
1: Yeah, I mean, Satan clearly doesn't want us to know that we live inside the earth. <laughs> so as I mentioned, again, this land was totally undeveloped except for uh, the cabin. Yeah. One shack. Yeah, so all these guys, they were living in tents and hiring local workmen to help with the efforts. And there was, unfortunately, a satanic presence in their midst. One workman named Mr. Jaffrey didn't believe that the experiment would work. And consequently, he would claim that the math of Morrow was off and that the device couldn't possibly produce a straight line. But again, I'm guessing this was just satanic influence because clearly Mr. Jaffrey couldn't have known what he was talking about. (laughs) And in fact, that's exactly what Ulysses Morrow thought. He believed that Jaffrey was not just wrong, but that he was literally the devil in human form Uh and that he should be watched very closely by the Koreshians to make sure that he doesn't physically sabotage the operation.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then they were convinced that if uh, otherwise, if they did Experiment and the line, the crossbars were not straight, and they could not prove that the Earth was concave. It was because, oh, clearly Jaffray had somehow sabotaged it. Yeah, and Morrow, he took this stuff very seriously. Oh, yes. He was- Yeah, he had big ambitions here. He was so serious about it that he even thought that he could get national recognition for this project. And uh, he had heard that a prize was being set up somewhere far away, created out of the state of a prominent Swedish chemist who had died. This chemist's name was Alfred Nobel. And Moro was convinced that he could be the very first person to win the Nobel Prize.
1: Well, I mean, clearly, if you want to do something in life, you should uh, have great ambitions, okay?
0: Clearly, Morrow had it all figured out. And so, but yeah, so speaking of figured things out, they did all their calculations, they did all the math, after many weeks of effort, they managed to successfully set up this entire four-mile-long rectilineator, going all the way down on the beach, uh, all up. Uh, I think this was—was this on Estero was on the mainland? Do you remember? It was on the mainland, I believe. Right, but it would have been overlooking Astero. So this was, you know, looking over at what was going to be the New Jerusalem. And they they grabbed their measuring rods, their rulers, to measure the—to see if the—and their their levelers, you know, to see if the rectilineator was level. And what did they see, Sam?
1: Well, they saw that Morrow was correct, that the earth was in fact concave, but yes. uh, again, they were setting this up on the beach. In other words, on sand. <laughs>
0: yes. And and that is, I think, the problem here. Each rod was meant to be slightly shorter than the one before. That would work on a very hard level surface. But on sand, once you when you put sticks in the sand, they start to sink. And I have to wonder if that might be part of what happened here with the rectilineator.
1: Yeah, but I mean, again, you can't fault these guys for uh, trying because clearly they were not cynical about this. Yeah, they're trying their best, for sure. And aside from the rectilineator, there wasn't much good news coming out of Estero. In fact, the entire first decade of the commune faced a very difficult existence. There needed to be a lot of labor put in to clear the land and make it habitable. And it was in this period that you had a lot of Koreshians uh, disgruntled by the difficult life that they faced, leave the commune and go to papers all over the country claiming that they were being taken advantage of by this cult run by this very strange man who, while they were busting their asses trying to build this commune, was going around the country giving lectures. And yeah, I mean, there's not much to say. It was a very difficult and very grueling experience. But that's just uh, what it takes to set up something on totally undeveloped land. Mm -hmm. But in fact, some of the people actually felt that the hardship was a plus side to to the venture. Financier Bertoldine Boomer's husband had just died and so she decided that she was going to go down to Florida with herself to leave behind her luxurious life of, of servants and fancy meals to live the Spartan lifestyle on the island of Astero to build this new Jerusalem personally. And news of the Delineator would spread across the United States and even across the world which led more people to
0: join the Koreshian cult and even to move to Astero. They also they started a kind of a permanent presence on the island and the mainland and they actually uh, to fund themselves they opened a little general store and apparently a lot of people growing up decades later in Fort Myers in like the 40s and 50s had pretty fond memories of these guys at the turn of the century who uh, they were, as adults, they said like, oh yeah, I remember back 50 years ago, those guys. They uh, they sold really good jam. So that was apparently the, the main impact on a lot of people's lives that the uh, the Koreshians had.
1: Yeah, and you know another great person who makes jam? Jeremy Corbyn. Really? So checkmate,
0: correction doubters. <laughs> I didn't know that, yeah. Yes, jam makers will inherit the earth. And as, speaking of inheriting the earth, so let's uh, talk a little more. So uh, so obviously this colony that they were starting to build, I think it wouldn't really be fully up and running until 1901. But in the late 19th century, they were putting the bones together. This was really intended to be the start of this new city, this new Jerusalem. And when they bought the land for pennies from Gustav Damkoller, they told him that he and his family, especially his son Elwin, would have a central role in this great city that was going to be built. And it would be the biggest city in the United States. What else did they uh, intend this city to be? And how did they start putting it into practice? Well, they planned to, again, make a city upon a hilltop.
1: Basically, the plans that Teed showed to Damkohler had the location where his cabin was supposed to be as like the very center of the city. And that Damkohler would be remembered forevermore as the person who allowed for this great Jerusalem to be built. Unfortunately, it didn't really pan out that way but I mean, it's not for lack of trying really. Yeah, and of course this was not only supposed to be the largest city in the United States, it was also supposed to be a celibate city. Right, yeah,
0: so I guess there would never be any natural population growth. It would just be, you know, new people coming in and dying and more people coming in and dying, or maybe not dying because they're immortal until, uh, you know, the end of days would come. Yeah, um,
1: exactly. But unfortunately, it was not to be. Trouble began only a couple of years after the corrections showed up. And although some of the locals weren't very happy with the corrections either for their own reasons, as we'll get into soon, the callers soon grew tired of their presence as well. Gustav began to have buyer's remorse a couple of years after the corrections had moved onto Estero. He somehow came to think that rather than being an essential part of the new heaven on earth he had been tricked into giving up all his property to this strange group of fraudsters so he went over to fort myers and he started a lawsuit against cyrus teed claiming that teed and his quote-unquote woman sorcerers had hypnotized him with singing until he had given up this land it does seem like he was taken advantage of because initially he remained in the custody of 20 or 40 acres of land which he had not given over to the koreshans because that was supposed to become his son's property but ultimately one night teed just had him over and basically convinced him to relinquish the rest of the land Mm -hmm. although he had done so reluctantly he was clearly not happy with this decision so because of this teed and the koreshians had found an enemy for life Mm -hmm. and that figure well, we'll speculate on who he is, but one day the Koreshians received a strange letter.
0: Based on the contents of the letter, the writer had been intimately involved with the Koreshians at some point, and was likely a follower, although he was too proud and angry to admit it. He wrote that he had lived in the colony, but only as a private detective for the purpose of infiltrating it. Where are the men who did all the work to settle this land? The writer asked. Gone, except for four of them. The rest left in disgust, he claimed, and some of them are keeping body and soul together by trying to sell firewood in Fort Myers. The writer claimed to have overheard two Koreshian men talking after one of Teed's sermons. He's a lunatic. I'd get out of this if I had five dollars. The other said, Hell, I gave it for two dollars. Furthermore, the writer claimed Teed and Victoria had been found in compromising positions. He had in fact been kissing many different women, and the writer had on good authority from a woman named Mrs. Wright that his breath was terrible. Mrs. Wright says that when you kiss her, she smells your foul, Carthol breath, and she wonders how old Victoria could stand so much of it. You, he wrote, have robbed widows of money and character and then turned against them. You are a liar, he then put in thick red ink. Where are the thunderdogs? daughters?" he asked listing the names of six young and pretty women who came to Astero in the early days. His answer was that only Vesta, one of the women, remained. The most surprising thing the writer mentioned is something that was sort of airbrushed away from Crussian history. Victoria's own son actually impregnated one of the women at Astero, the so-called Thunderdaughters, and the couple had a child out of wedlock. The writer boasted that he was in fact responsible for moving a post office off of Crussian land, and that he'd exposed all of their fraud. Teed forced his female followers to lie for him, the writer accused. Are you in the Napoleon role now?" he asked. He compared Teed to the famous puppet character Punch and, in fact, included a caricature and profile of Teed. It is an amazing likeness of both Teed and Punch. The writer explained he was collecting information on Teed for many years and was waiting for the right time to air it. He signed the letter, Your Hater and beneath it added a cryptic phrase in an old Spanish dialect. I vow that your land will go up in flames.
1: We should sign more letters as your hater. We just don't get enough of these kinds of shenanigans these days, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) No, absolutely, yeah, that's a great letter, everything. Like adding a cartoon to show that uh, your opponent is short and ugly. That's awesome.
1: This was hardly the first taped mail that Teed has received in his career, but this was by far the most detailed and specific one that survived. Yeah. It's eight pages long and it, most importantly, named names, as opposed to the physical threats that Teed and his followers had received in Chicago. Yeah. This one was written by someone who wanted to destroy Teed's reputation and had the inside experience to do that forcefully. He wrote, quote, I am watching your movements
0: and your." fraudulent business whenever an opportunity presents itself right and i think this is the best time to tell one of my favorite parts of the whole corruption story which is such a bizarre little episode it feels like it could have been an All Be sunny itself because in 1898 they got some strange news and the strange news was that a rival cult was opening up next door known as the order of the crystal sea led by a group of people who called themselves Fruitarians wanted to found their <laughs> own better celibate city right next door.
1: Yeah, and the head of this movement was a woman who was, was supposedly royalty, in fact. She was Princess Edith Loletta, who said that she was the secret illegitimate daughter of the king of Bavaria and the famous dancer Lola Montes.
0: Right, so this so-called princess and her husband came to Fort Myers to plan out her new colony, and she even came by the early site at Astero to try to recruit people over. But then some of them realized this woman, who was very large, very mysterious, very well-dressed, and had a peculiar scar, seemed a little familiar. Because as it turns out, Princess Lolita was, in fact, this D-Bar, that notorious con woman who had joined the group back in Chicago. And then been kicked out. <laughs> Incredible. Riveting stuff. Yeah, it's great, it's great. And so as soon as Dis D. Bar got to South Florida, there was this instant rivalry between these two cult leaders. It doesn't seem like Dis D. Bar's cult ever actually got off the ground, but she did make some very damning allegations in the local Fort Myers press against Cyrus Teed, and then he fired back with his own allegations. The main thing she argued was that they were not, in fact, celibate, and that this whole group was his harem. I- again, she never implied that she had been abused in any way, but she insisted that he was secretly sleeping with many different women in the group. No four members ever corroborated this, but there was one, a person who made an interesting claim, and that was that person from the, the last letter. So Mrs. Wright never said that she was abused or harassed by Teed, but she said that he was always kissing women and that although he was technically celibate, he would kiss women to generate tension within his biological battery, which I guess would make him holier or something.
1: That's a great excuse, honestly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> although uh, when when met with this allegation, Teed denied everything and he fired back that it was all projection because he alleged that back in Chicago, D.S.D. had tried to convince a young girl to seduce a male member in a, a harebrained skin to money.
1: Yeah, so eventually Princess Goleda's colony idea came to naught. It fizzled out and moved over to England, where a few years later she would be arrested for fraud after it was discovered that she had been posing as the so-called Swami Laura Horace and was selling stolen correction pamphlets in London under her own
0: name right yeah yeah so yeah so the, the, the whole like you know dis debar rival cult thing it didn't have any uh didn't do too much harm directly on the the start of this Florida compound but it did lead to a lot of press coverage which I think was both good and bad for the Russians
1: yeah and in addition to the dis debar saga there was also the lawsuit that had been filed by
0: by Gustav Damkohler. right. From Dom Kohler, yeah, 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 which was, again, just led to more press coverage. And apparently it was that lawsuit by Dom Kohler, which actually first uh, started to turn the public opinion of people in Florida against the Corrections.
1: Yeah, in fact, the Fort Myers Post wrote, quote, if even 10% of these allegations are true, Siren's Teed ought to have been in the clutches of
0: the law a long time ago. Yes. And so following that coverage by the local newspaper, suddenly national reporters started to pay attention. So journalists from Pittsburgh came down to investigate the Crescent colony, and they noted that, in fact, things were so bad that a couple of a couple crushans from Europe had attempted to leave the group. But because they didn't speak any English, they were really unable to actually find any meaningful work on the and we're just begging on the street for money.
1: Yeah, and there was another piece written in Chicago at this time against the Corrections, but this one was far less convincing. It claimed that the policy of celibacy had caused one young woman to, quote, die of a broken heart, and little girl died from neglect because Teed had hypnotized her mother into not caring for her child. And the New York Times, they also got back on the Teed train. The claim that Teed had confiscated gold jewelry from his followers and melted it down to create a sword to gift it to Victoria. Gratia
0: for her birthday. Yeah, well, which is great. I love that. Yeah. And but I think the funniest thing about all of this coverage is that despite it, it seems like it only helped the Corussians grow. Because, you know, people they skimmed over the parts about the gold sword or the deaths of a broken heart. And instead they looked in the part where it said, This guy claims if you join his group, you can live forever. because. That really appealed to a lot of people. And so many people from not just the U.S., but as you mentioned, from other countries started coming to the commune in Chicago and then eventually to the new commune in Florida.
1: Yeah. And so in 1901, uh, the Pan-American Exposition happened in Buffalo, New York. It was a world Fair 20 years after the famous convention in Chicago. And it gave T an opportunity to go back home right up to upstate New York And at the World Fair, Teed was able to set up an entire kiosk for the Koreshian religion. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem like this particular venture was very fruitful because Estero wasn't set up yet. And although they had the plans, the people living down there still didn't really have the means to provide for people coming over. Nevertheless, all publicity is good publicity and people were certainly aware of Teed at this time. And in fact, T had made himself very well known to one group which would come to haunt him. Teed decided that he was going to take on the political establishment.
0: Yes. And that, right, might have been his greatest mistake.
1: Yeah, although this was kind of inevitable as, at a certain point, I'd say, as we saw, the Koreshians were clearly a very political bunch. So it was no surprise that once the bulk of the group had moved to Florida at the end of 1903, when the colony was finally complete, they began to involve themselves in electoral questions. And at this point, this part of Florida was still very scarcely populated, which meant that the Corrections, although they only had 50 men in their ranks, because again, this was 1904, they didn't have women's suffrage yet, but nevertheless, they had enough people to potentially swing an election. And the Fort Myers region at this point was in the grip of a family known as the Hendrys. These were your typical small town, small business tyrants. The mayor of Fort Myers in 1904 was Lewis Hendry, who was the same lawyer who represented Gustav Damkohler in his case against the corrections. I mean, this guy, he was sketchy to hell and back because once the trial was over and the court found in favor of Damkohler, he in fact, he saw very little of his grand return to him because, because Hendry had taken it as payment for his services.
0: Yeah, I know he's like the kind of classic like sleazy early 20th century southern lawyer, you know the simple country lawyer type who's just robbing you blind.
1: Yeah, but a lot of people were very unhappy with Hendry's and his modus operandi and one of these people would be the newspaper man Philip Isaacs who had in fact been brought over to Fort Myer to set up a Democratic paper against the Republican press which was quite active at the time. But in his post. Uh, Isaacs went rogue because he was a small businessman himself and he was strongly against raising taxes. Uh, the Hendrys themselves wanted to raise taxes to fund infrastructure like sewage, to clean up the wharf, things of that nature. But Isaacs was just not having it. So Isaacs began to solicit support for his own agenda and he was ultimately able to become the head of the local democratic party in large part with the help of the Koreshians, who he had gotten over to his side by promising to help them to incorporate Estero as a town. But incorporation would mean tax revenues, and unfortunately, this would mean that the two parties would come at Gloggerhead's quite soon. Mm-hmm. So Isaacs, he's the head of the local Democratic Party, and he's able to unseat many of the Hendries and their supporters in the 1904 election. Mm-hmm. But by 1906, the Koreshians were no longer on such great terms with Isaacs. The Koreshians had intended to, work, to vote for a pro-tax candidate in 1906, and Isaacs, he became their enemy at that point. Since Estero was now an incorporated town, they wanted to get a share of the county tax revenues, and Isaacs, who was now now the head of the local Democratic Party, found a way to disenfranchise them.
0: Isaacs and his committee decided to require Democrats to sign a pledge before they could vote in the primary. This pledge affirmed that the voters had supported Democrats across the board in 1904. Uh, just, Just to interrupt here, The fact that this existed is just such an insane indictment of how unbelievably undemocratic the South was in the early 20th century. Like, that that is just shocking. You sign a loyalty pledge just to be involved. But I'm sorry, let me continue. This pledge was made because it was widely known that the Koreshians were Republicans. They had supported Teddy Roosevelt for president because they liked that he broke up monopolies and resolved labor disputes. But on the state level, the Koreshians voted for Democrats. Even so, they didn't qualify to vote in the 1906 primary under Isaac's rules. Despite this, they showed up to vote anyway. The poll workers handed each man a copy of the Democratic Pledge. Correction member Ross Wallace, a street preacher and square dance caller who was now a candidate for county commission, was the first in line. He took the piece of paper, crossed out the crucial clause, signed the pledge, and returned it to the election official, who allowed him to vote. Then, one by one, each of the 55 correction men did the same, striking through the words that disqualified them, signing the document, and casting a vote. Four days later, Isaacs and the Democratic Executive Committee revoked the Coruscant's votes. The decision was unanimous, and the state of Florida supported it. By voting, Isaac said, the Coruscant's had committed a misdemeanor punishable by three months in jail.
1: That's just nuts. And I mean, it may seem shocking to us, but this was just how politics was done in local elections in large swaths of the country until fairly recent.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, uh, a lot of Rick Perlstein stuff really kind of exposes this, especially his earlier books. It's just, it's really, it's just really crazy how so much of American democracy wasn't even true until like yesterday, if it ever was.
1: Yeah, yeah, so. So before Isaacs had a falling out with the Koreshians, he had actually allowed them to have their views and editorials published in his newspaper, the Fort Myers Press. But once they had a falling out, the deal was no longer actual, of course. So the Koreshians went and founded their own newspaper. And surprisingly, they got it up and running two weeks after they had been disenfranchised, which shows that they were very well organized and well equipped by this point. Throughout this episode, we've voiced admiration for the Koreshians, for clearly having their shit together and this is one great example i mean just two weeks to put it together an entire newspaper but
0: what were the contents of this newspaper oh no it it was right it had it had its own cartoons it had articles uh the one cartoon you found sam it's it shows one of their rivals Is, is it isaacs himself Yes, that's Isaacs.
1: They basically had a long-running series of political cartoons in every issue that would show yeah. Isaacs in various compromising positions.
0: Oh, yeah, this one yeah, this one is the best. It's basically a meme. It shows Isaacs as a baby on a high chair sucking on a bottle that says power, and then a hand takes away the bottle, and Isaacs is crying. Recent events would indicate that he is losing it, the caption reads. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and the Croatian uh, newspaper in general was great. Here's another quote from Allure of Immortality. The first issue had an editorial titled Our Initial Scream on its front page. It opened as follows. From out of the heat of the recently county political strife has been hatched the American Eagle full-fledged and strong of beak. His flight is lofty. No place, though no high escapes his keen far-seeing eye. And again, it was called the American Eagle. So
0: yeah, I wonder if Ulysses Morrow wrote that because he clearly had a, uh, a way for uh, a way for words. Um,
1: uh, no, actually the newspaper was run almost entirely by, by Abby Williams son, oh. Andrew, I believe his name was. Oh, that was the, uh, the, the Peehole guy. Well, it was the guy to whom Teed wrote about the, P-hole. It was his first follower.
0: Yes, about the P-hole incident. Right, right. Okay, of course, of course, of course. Yeah.
1: And so in this first issue of the newspaper, they also announced that the Corrections were going to found their own political party, the Progressive Liberty Party, which was to stand for, quote, public ownership of utilities, equal distribution of wealth, and open government. Yeah, like if you remove the, you know,
0: celibacy and round earth, hollow earth stuff, that does not sound too bad.
1: Yeah, no, it sounds great. And in fact, they found support in many quarters. But soon enough, T received a threatening letter saying that unspecified people were coming for him and that the Koreshians should get their guns ready. The American Eagle published this response.
0: Our guns are ready and primed, one Koreshian responded in the Eagle, but then said, our guns are loaded with facts rather than bullets. Although, uh, despite this, apparently, uh, although that's a great line, right? You know, that's the original, you know, facts and logic kind of thing. It turns out that actually some of the men in the corruption settlement did actually arm themselves physically, just in case anyone tried to set fire to their buildings.
1: Yeah, well, there was good reason for this. And in fact, there would be fires in estero not, not just one this was something that had happened to them before and yeah clearly they had good reasons to worry mm-hmm. so as the progressive liberty party began to gain a following among people outside of the correction group this heavily worried the establishment uh, because many people they were tired of these nepotistic small town politics yeah. represented by isaacs and hendry's and the corrections with their progressive anti-corruption platform proved to be successful enough to disrupt the politics of fort myers at this point and at this point, right before the 1906 election, tensions were running very high. One minor incident would in fact have dire ramifications down the line. There was a misunderstanding over a phone call, which resulted in one of the townspeople accusing the Corrections of having insulted his wife and... One day, Teed and some of his followers were in town on business, and Teed spotted the person who thought that one of the Koreshians had called his wife a liar. So he approached him to speak to him, hoping to clear up the situation.
0: Instead, Teed was assaulted. Don't call me a liar! Sellers yelled at Teed. He swung at him and struck Teed in the face. He swung again, getting in two more solid blows, and so started a brawl that was equal to anything Fort Myers had seen in its cowboy days, the Fort Myers Press reported. Sellers pounded Teed's head with his fists. Witnesses said that Teed struck Sellers' back, but Teed claimed that he only moved in closer to protect himself and raised his arms to block his face. When Teed looked to the marshal for protection, he got none. Instead, Marshal Sanchez stepped forward and slapped Teed so hard that his spectacles fell to the ground.
1: And at this point, Teed was an elderly man. He would have been like 65 at this point, I believe, so.
0: Yeah, which was probably, and that that was a lot older back then than it is now.
1: Yeah, so... It's hard not to read this without considering the political context. Teed was threatening to unsettle the political balance of Fort Myers, and the marshal would have been on the payroll of people who stood to lose from this. So on election night, an effigy of Teed was hung on a telegraph pole in addition to the physical assault of this person that had happened. And the Progressive Liberty Party had a respectable showing yeah. f- for its first run. Although they didn't win any seats in that election, it seemed like they were on the track to become a major political
0: player in the region. Uh, unfortunately, though, probably the the biggest impact of their foray into politics was the fact that the beatings Teed suffered in 1906 would ultimately be fatal.
1: Shortly after the clash, Teed found himself being hit by bouts of intense nerve pain, which would suffer for the remainder of his life. Uh, towards the end, these episodes would totally immobilize him for days and weeks at a time. They would b- become longer and more intense. And his followers believed that this was the consequence
0: of the beating, although it's difficult to say for sure. That's true, especially because if, if you're in your mid-late 60s in 1908, a lot of things can kill you.
1: Yeah, but again, the decline was very rapid and happened after Teed had gotten beaten, so it's not the craziest thing to suppose. On a more political note, the situation between the Fort Myers Democrats and the Corrections escalated to the county level after Estero officials petitioned the county to give them more tax revenues, which is really what they needed, because at this point, they were getting the town up and running, they were getting their institutions, in fact, it was a really nice place to live, like, they had an art hall, like, they had a music hall, they had had theater productions. Uh, By all accounts, after the building of the commune was done, these Mm -hmm. people lived a pretty comfortable life. But the county officials they were really unhappy with this upstart in their midst who was stirring up all this trouble mm-hmm. and were dead set against Teed and Astero. Uh, to this end, they had the town unincorporated. And in addition to this, I uh, remember when we mentioned burning, some of the buildings in Astero were burned to the ground around this time as well. And the movement believed that there was foul play involved. and And clearly it's not the craziest thing to suppose that they were yeah. in the crosshairs, especially with actual threats being addressed to them. So, although Estero would be reincorporated when the matter reached higher levels of Florida government, the downfall of the Koreshian Commune began at this point. Teed was ailing with uh, diseases, it became increasingly clear that the time of his Theocrasus was at hand, mm-hmm. and in general, it just looked kind of bleak. Yeah, so Teed would continue to travel around a little bit while he was still able to, in fact, He was in Washington, D.C. when he was hit by one particularly bad bout of nerve pain, which ultimately got so overwhelming that he decided to move back to Estero in the meantime Mm -hmm. to be in the presence of his followers who would take care of him. And this was how he spent the remainder of his life. He was writing a novel at this time. To quote from A of Immortality, Teed's novel is an apocalyptic story in which Chinese and Japanese forces invade the United States and bring about Armageddon. In the book, thousands of people come together in Florida on the Gulf of Mexico in the city of Blessed, that is, Estero. People are building 1,000 mysterious machines. They don't know what they are building or preparing for. In the novel, Asian invaders close in on Florida and things look grim for the city. But then, the author reveals the purpose of the machines. The people had created radio-directed flying machines, or, as Teed calls them in his book, non-gravel wireless power aerial navigators. Teed wrote his book during the golden age of the airship. The commander of the fleet of airships is called the Princess Admiral. There's no mistake that this is Victoria. From these ships, they drop exploding balls onto the invaders. Other mysterious dirigibles appear and raise fire onto the enemies, the people in the city are safe. Yeah, so this book was called The Red Dragon or The Flaming Devil of the Orient and Teed would have it published not under his own name but under the nom de plume, Lord Chester. And again, the title refers to the red dragon from Revelation 12, which we mentioned from the top of the episode, which was where Teed's divine mother figure clearly got her appearance from. That's not even the craziest part. The really wild part is that just a couple of months Before Teed's own novel would come out, H.D. Wells released a novel called The War in the Air, which again features Chinese and Japanese invaders in the United States. But this time, upstate New York is devastated. And again, airships are very prominently featured in the Wells novel as well. So it seems like clearly someone in the industry had hinted to Wells that there was a novel in the works of. And he decided that he was going to use these themes to his own ends. In the middle of writing this novel, Teed was just all this time. He was increasingly bedbound and he would just spend many of his days on the balcony looking over the colony and his followers and it was very painful for his followers to see him in that state because, um, again, what had previously been a very vivacious man who always had a lot to say was suddenly rendered immobile, pretty much. And on the eve of his death, he clearly sensed that the time had come for his Theocrasis to take place. He asked that his followers built him a little house of concrete stone, literally for just a single person. I shall only want a small one, Teed said, square, just room for one. So clearly this was an allusion to a coffin, which would later go on to be used to house Teed's body once his steel crosses uh, had failed to manifest itself, and uh, Florida authorities were informed that there was a rotting body laying out in Estero.
0: Right, and so as we, and that brings us back to the beginning, where uh, the corpse is put into a hastily built tomb, and for the next few years, the Creations slow try to keep their commune together, but slowly start to dwindle thanks to declining belief as. Their great Koresh refuses to resurrect himself and also because in a celibate commune, you can't exactly, you know, reproduce yourself. So it started to shrink.
1: Yeah, um, at this point, uh, Tide was clearly the guiding light of the commune. Uh, So once he had passed away, there just wasn't the momentum to keep it going.
0: Right. Uh, Interestingly, there are a few cases of people who continued to join after Koresh's death. And I think the last member had actually joined right before World War II, And she would be the final member until her death in the 1980s.
1: Yeah, this was a woman named Hedwig uh, Mitchell, who had been a teacher in a Jewish school in Germany. In 1940, she was able to get an exit visa. And through the Koreshians, whose views she had become acquainted with and found compelling, it seems, for whatever reason. Yeah, and likely save her own life. So in 1940, thanks to the Koreshians, she was able to make it over to the United States and to settle on the Koreshian compound when they only
0: had 35 followers left. Yeah, and then because she was quite young at the time, she and they were all quite elderly she would eventually be the last one.
1: Yeah, she would pass away in 1982, I believe, and she was the one who made sure that the territory would become a state park following her death. Yeah. Uh, which you can still visit to this day if you want to visit the Estero compound. Yeah. Uh, you can visit it and see all their wacky little buildings, uh, their art hall,
0: and their grocery store. And uh, that's basically the end of the story, but there's one little final note that I think we should mention, which was that uh, something interesting happened about... 13 years after Cyrus Teed's death. Something that might have given just a last little spark of hope in the minds of the Corussian Unity Church. And this was, of all things the 1921 Tampa Bay hurricane. Because in 1921, uh, 101 years ago, a hurricane ruled through Southwest Florida that was apparently pretty bad. It was a category four, and I believe it was the worst hurricane to ever hit Tampa directly. It led to a significant devastation of the Caribbean and surrounding areas like Florida. It tore through Cuba, went past the Yucatan Peninsula, before eventually landing right near the island of astero the creuschian compound was terribly shaken i'm sure many windows might have been broken i'm sure some buildings might have been damaged the people the remaining members of the creuschian movement were huddled inside you know probably praying for safety maybe even wondering if this hurricane could have been the could be the end of days itself but then the next morning they went outside to see the damage none of them thankfully were killed but there was severe monetary damage and they realized that the worst of the damage was in fact on the tomb to Cyrus Teed that they had built years earlier. This tomb, which had been built, I think, in just one day, very quickly, was destroyed in the hurricane. And to their shock, it was empty. There was no sign of the body of Cyrus Teed. So yeah, uh, eventually they would find a skeleton, which most certainly was the skeleton of Cyrus Teed. But I gotta wonder if, you know, some of the Crescens had to think that maybe this meant that somehow the big man did get out after all. Maybe during the hurricane, maybe before that, maybe he did rise from the grave. And for all we know, Cyrus Teed could be out there somewhere. And maybe sometime in our lifetimes, he's going to return and he'll help all of us get into this new Jerusalem. Hopefully this time, not on Florida. And before we wrap this
1: episode up, uh, let's quickly go over what happened to several of the prominent members of the Koreshian community. Yeah, so following the death of Teed, in fact, only a couple of months after it, uh, Victoria Gratia, she eloped and got married to the dentist of the Koreshians, and she would continue to live for a couple of more decades, at which point this episode was really striking to the corrections because Victoria Gratia, as we mentioned earlier, was supposed to be the second half of the Godhead. Teed, after undergoing theocrasis was supposed to come to dwell within her body, and she was supposed to take over leadership of the group. And her running away with this guy just totally shattered the faith of many of the members of the commune. And the newspaper that we mentioned, The American Eagle, would, in fact, continue to be published uh, until the 50s, I believe it was. Alan, who, again, was the son of A.B. he actually made the journal somewhat well-respected as a botanical newspaper because... Oh, really? He had a very strong... Yeah, he, he had a very strong interest in farming and botany and insects and things of that nature. So he spent the rest of his life living on this commune and writing and putting out this newspaper to write about these kinds of topic, which won him some renown in the world Ritgarge. And speaking of renown, the Croatian commune would continue to be visited by many fun figures, most notably, perhaps, by Thomas Edison, who had a summer residence in uh, nearby and who had been acquainted with the Croatians. He would often come by to visit them, and he seemed to enjoy himself over there, so I guess it was a nice place after all.
0: Mm-hmm. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Definitely. Uh, very Florida at this time is just a very funny, uh, very funny, very interesting place. It's always been very cursed in many ways. But I think that uh, these guys, the Corrussians, I think were better than a lot of them going to Florida at this time.
1: Yeah. In fact, the Corrussians were a blessing
0: upon the belated face of Florida. And I, and I think in general, like uh, it's probably obvious to listeners, but you and I both kind of have a soft spot for these guys because they're kooky in a way that was fun and interesting and didn't seem to be that harmful. It really seems like they had this genuine belief that often came from a place of real sympathy for struggling people and often, uh, and kind of this naive, but very uh, kind of charming passion for the truth and to explain the secrets of the world. This was a time when so much about the world was coming into question and so much was, supposedly being explained. And these guys, the followers of Cyrus Teed, they thought they had a way to explain all of it. And it's really easy to see why that might have been attractive. Yeah,
1: I mean, hell, without the cellular cosmogony stuff, I could get down with a lot of what Cyrus Teed said.
0: Oh yeah, no, especially like the, the, the gender and class stuff was like right on the money. And especially compared to what was the political mainstream at this time. These guys were incredibly progressive in their own way. They just happened to also believe that we lived inside an egg.
1: Yeah, so I guess it's safe to say that, uh, that the Koreshians are officially our favorite cult. And if you're looking to start a cult, maybe look over the correction literature, and uh, <laughs> there you have a great starting
0: place. All right, I think that'll be it for this week. Thank you so much, everybody, for being part of this. And thank you, Sam, for doing so much great research, as always, on this episode. Well, thank you,
1: Liam, as well, for your leading role in uh, introducing us to this topic and for putting together the bulk of the episode. And again, if you'd like to learn more about the Russians, please be sure to check out Milner's The Allure of Immortality. It's a great read. Right.
0: Great book. Yeah.
1: And you really will learn a lot about this fascinating movement and
0: these very kooky people. Yes. We are going to be diving back into a very different aspect of American history soon. So stay tuned to Gladiator for Europe. We've got some great stuff coming. Bye-bye.